Hey, deserving listeners, today we're going to talk about perfectionism. Perfectionism is a really difficult thing for people. It can cause all sorts of problems for people in their lives. Things like lack of motivation, low self-esteem, anxiety, and worrying about things being perfect. It can even lead to eating disorders, um, difficulties in school with being able to actually turn things in for fear of it not being perfect. It can lead to depression, other mood disorders. It can lead to imposter syndrome, feeling like you're just an imposter, faking like you're good at something. And with all that stress, you can become burnt out with something because you're trying all the time to be perfect and it will burn you out. And you just say, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And this, it can even lead to suicide. Perfectionism has been linked with actually dying. So perfectionism can, in essence, kill people. You know, it's really rough. It's a really rough experience uh, for the most part. And, of course, the Internet is full of bad information about perfectionism. The Internet loves to distort our psychological concepts. When it comes to perfectionism, the Internet seems to think that it's just, you know, liking things to be in order or preferring uh, um, to be organized or something. And certainly that can be an element of perfectionism. But as I, you know, mentioned, perfectionism can be much more difficult than, than just uh, a preference for things being in order. And of course, if you're a famous person or a famous performer and you're particular about your performances being good, then the internet will label you as a perfectionist. You know, people like Madonna or something. It's like she cares about her shows and therefore she's a perfectionist. Barbara Streisand, this kind of thing. Um, and it's, it, all that talk on the internet just really, I think, demeans the experience of actual humans. And so that's what I'm going to talk about today. I want to talk about perfectionism and kind of uh, go through all the different aspects of it and the different levels. And uh, some there's there's beneficial forms of perfectionism and, and, and also d- destructive. By the way, this episode is a, a patron-only episode, but I have a few things to say before we get to the patron zone. I want to talk about myself in this episode. So, you know, I I sometimes struggle with perfectionism myself. Uh, for example, when it comes to this podcast, there are times when I'm doing a deep dive, like like with this episode, and I will be you know researching and talking and thinking and reading and writing and um, you know just that whole process, and it you know takes a long time. And there's a lot of twists and turns in the researching of things. You know, each each one of these topics, I will kind of know a little bit about. But in order to do a, a really good episode or the sort of episode that I think I'm capable of or the sort of episode that I think the listeners deserve, I really set my mind on producing something that I think is like you know, perhaps the best episode that's ever been made in, pod, in the podcasting world on a particular topic. And I know that's super grandiose, but I did, you know, there's just not a lot of podcasters who have the luxury, like I do, to dedicate all the time necessary to, to, to do something as, as um, comprehensive, I should say. Maybe not the best episode on perfectionism, but, but like 
the the most comprehensive. I'm a very comprehensive perfectionist. Uh, I I need to read every single research article, every book, everything online. I need to I need to read everything that's ever been produced about a particular topic before I make an episode about it. And when it comes to that process, like I said, there's a lot of twists and turns in that. And I need to keep my motivation up because at any time I could just be like, okay, I'm not going to do this. I'll just do something easier or, or even I'll just stop doing the podcast altogether. You know, I, I, there's, there's no, no one employs me to do this. I just, I do this on my own. And uh, at any time I could just pull the plug or at the very least I could slow down and just be like, ah, you know, let's put less effort into this. It's, it's sort of hard to do all this stuff. And so to spend, you know, eight, 12 hours a day, just reading and researching and writing, you need to keep your motivation up. And one of the things that keeps my motivation up is this, this drive to produce something that is, like I said, comprehensive, that, that really fully encapsulates a particular topic. And there are times in the winding road getting there that I will become quite confused. <laughs> there will be times when I wonder, what am I doing? Or do I really understand this concept? Or how much work is this going to actually take? <laughs> you know, because sometimes these episodes will take months of, of my time to research. And, you know, there are times when you have a, a bad mood moment. And in those moments of bad mood and, you know, demoralization, I, I have this vision in my head, a sort of uh, unspoken vision of this episode just being really bad. I, I just, I have this image of like, oh, this episode is going to be not perfect. It is going to be mediocre. People are going to listen to this episode and think, oh, Kirk, uh, nice try, but you, you know, you really missed the mark here. <laughs> And, you know, I get feedback like that sometimes, so it's not like it's inconceivable. And I, uh, in those moments, because of my perfectionism, it will feel very bad to me. It will, uh, my mood will plummet, my motivation will plummet, and I will suddenly be, I'll be staring at the computer screen, I'll just be like, what am I doing with my life? I, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm... I'm trying to do something that I will fail at. I'm going to fail. This is going to be awful. And I, I, I will just stop. I can't go on. I, you know, I have that burnout feeling. I have that giving up feeling of just like, why am I, do, why am I trying to make some, You know, it's sort of like um, a similar experience that I have with this is when it comes to cooking. I'm not very good at cooking. And so there are times when every once in a while where I'll be tasked with cooking something and I'll be in the middle of cooking something and I'll just be like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what temperature things should be. I don't know what a pinch of salt exactly means. I don't know when meat is actually cooked all the way through. So what am I doing here? I, I shouldn't be here. And that that's that feeling when I run into, you know, uh, that uh, down that valley of motivation and uh, with the, with developing a podcast episode. And that's perfectionism. You know, that this, it's sort of the, the yin and yang of perfectionism, which is that perfectionism can be beneficial for people and for me in that when I am in the zone and things are going well, I am highly motivated to produce what 
I believe to be the the closest thing to perfect I can make, the most comprehensive, the most uh, well instructive episode that's ever been made on a topic. Now, of course, that's ridiculous because um, I haven't consumed every single thing that's ever been made on a topic, but. But but sometimes I, I literally believe that, you know, it's just like, you know, podcasting is fairly new. Of course, in 50 years, if there are still podcasts, there will be so many other psychological podcasts that will surpass me, of course. But but right now, you know, it's it's still kind of in the Wild West. You know, think of like early radio days in the 30s or something. It, it, it's still possible now to produce like the quintessential episode on a particular topic. And so so anyway, that that motivates me. I'm like, oh man, you know, I, I can do this. Look at, you know, all this stuff that I have and I have all this stuff available to me and I'm privileged with my time and the, the patrons are paying money and they, you know, I, I, I can take money away from my regular job and really dedicate to this particular topic. You know, what a great thing. I'm going to, I'm going to produce this monument of, of an episode to a particular topic. You know, again, it's super grandiose, but it, 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 that's what motivates me, you know. It that that's a, a, a that gives me a lot of pleasure to be able to to produce that kind of stuff. It feels good, and so that's the perfectionism that helps me. That the striving for a perfect product, and of course, I always know it's never perfect. I mean, I can already just think in the however long I've been talking to you so far, ten minutes or so, that I've already screwed up several things. I've stuttered, I've misspoke, I've regretted certain word choices. So it's not like it's perfect, but but I hope you get my meaning. It's like a, a high motivation to make something that is of high quality, not, not only to me, but to other people as well. So, so that's the good side of perfectionism. But then when I run into self-doubt and those voices start to come in your head, you know, just like, this is going to be crappy. Everyone's going to see how stupid this is. Uh, you'll never be able to make the most you know, perfect episode. It's not possible. You don't know how to do this. What are you doing? And then the motivation just completely drops out from underneath me and, and I go falling and I'm just like, what am I doing here? And I walk away. Now I've been doing this podcast for over 10 years. And so I've had these moments so many times that I know immediately what's happening and that is, is that, oh, I'm, I'm just running into the bad side of perfectionism and I just need to take a break. And if I take a break, however long it takes, sometimes it just means like a half an hour or something. But sometimes it's like a day or two or even a week. And in that time, it's sort of like my brain resets or something. And I, I forget what was the premise behind my demoralization and I come back to it. Um, or fresh eyes looking at something, or, or sometimes it, it's it's just saying to me myself later, you know, a couple of days later, just saying like, well, you know, look, it's not going to be the best episode. There's probably dozens of other podcast episodes by other people that are better than this. But you know what? Uh, I I really want to do it anyway, and I'm going to do it even even though this episode is going to be mediocre. So. So in that way, I, through my therapy and through my own contemplation and self-care, have learned to uh, stay on the beneficial side of perfectionism and, uh, you know, to, to sort of stave off the negative side of perfectionism. So, so that's, you know, perfectionism. <laughs> um, 
and I'm going to get into the pros and cons of perfectionism more later. So I want to tell a story about a client who suffered from perfectionism as a way of bringing this into to the clinical world. So, uh, and as, all, as always, whenever I talk about clients, I always mask their identity to protect their confidentiality. This is a teenage Asian girl, and, and her presenting problem was that she was breaking rules at home. She was talking back to her parents. She was, um, her grades weren't doing so great. She was skipping school. She was hanging out with different sort of crowd, uh, caught shoplifting, she would state that she suffered from anxiety and her parents forced her into therapy and she wasn't very enthusiastic about therapy at, at first. So it took me a while to build a relationship with her, with some teenagers like this and children. It can take a long time. You really have to spend, even if they're talkative and quite polite in therapy, it, it can take, well, it can, it's, it can take a long time for anyone, frankly, to d- develop a relationship, particularly for people who are being forced into therapy. And at first I thought, you know, well, you know, this therapy situation, she doesn't really seem to want anything. We're working on things kind of, but not really. But then she had a crisis. She had a breakup with a boyfriend. And she also, during that time, was experiencing a lot of bullying at school. And this resulted in her uh, resorting to cutting, uh, non-suicidal self-injury. And she was caught by her father uh, cutting in the bathroom and her, her father, you know, was, her family was very alarmed and, and she was very alarmed too. She, you know, in that moment kind of had a wake up call of just like, man, I, I probably should be talking with my therapist more openly about my life. And so she opened up and she talked about how she was suffering deeply really. And that she had been cutting to cope with deep insecurities and deep feelings of loneliness now, she had some borderline traits, but she wasn't high on, this, on the spectrum, um, as evidenced by her ability to trust me fairly quickly after the crisis. Um, and she told me more about her life, and so I'm thinking, okay, we're getting somewhere in therapy. You know, she's opening up. I'm, I'm glad that she's doing that. And I eventually discovered that she has been spending a lot of time on social media, particularly Instagram. And... She told me that she was basically semi-famous in the teen Instagram world as someone who knew a lot about hair and makeup and fashion and this kind of stuff. Um, And even though she had attained some fame, she was constantly thinking about how she could be more famous. In her mind, she wanted to have the most famous, or I don't know the term, the, the most liked, the most shared, the most followed Instagram feed of all time when it came to fashion and makeup and hair and that kind of stuff. Um, You know, like other super famous Instagram people like the Kardashians or something or Jenners. And it was all that she thought about. I mean, certainly there's a lot of people who think about that, but she thought about it a lot. And there were times when she felt very good about herself after getting some sort of accolade online, you know, like, I don't know, one of the, Kardashians or Jenners following her on Instagram or something. But but really more often she was feeling deeply inferior and she was deeply suffering. She hated the way she looked. She thought she was too fat. She thought she was ugly. She thought her nose looked too Asian. And all of this 
negativity towards herself would, you know, sort of cause her to ruminate on what she was doing on Instagram. And she would have moments like me, it was was sort of more exaggerated, where she'd be like in the zone and, and she'd be, you know, making Instagram posts and doing little videos and stuff. And, and everything was going well for her because she was getting a lot of accolades. And then there are other moments where she, you know, thought I am, I'm imperfect. I'm ugly. What am I doing here? Not enough people follow me. Uh, and she would have her motivation would just plummet. And she would think about um, completely closing her Instagram account altogether, which for some of us is not a big deal. But for her, that was like, you know, a really big move. And so this was something that was really consuming to her. And again, similar to me, she would have positive moments and negative moments. But uh, dissimilar to me, she experienced 99% of the time she was experiencing some sort of negative suffering as a result of this perfectionistic loop that she was in. And so the therapy with her involved helping her to see this process for what it was. And the temptation that I had at first was just to tell her, like, just close your Instagram account. This is stupid. Because I don't use Instagram. I, I Every once in a while, someone will motivate me to do Instagram and um, I had a marketing person actually tell me recently, like, oh, you got to be on Instagram. And I'm like, oh, okay, fine. And I sort of dabbled in it for like five seconds. And I was like, oh, Instagram, it's such a weird interface. <laughs> um, uh, like you can't use your computer. You have to use your phone. And it's just like, why? Anyway. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so from my perspective, I'm just like, just close your Instagram account. Like, you know, if it's causing you so much problems, you know, just move on. But that is a simplistic way of looking at things. It's sort of like when we look at people who are complaining about their spouses or something, you know, they're having a lot of really bad experiences and, and fighting with their spouse. And you're just like, well, just divorce, just divorce your husband, you know, move on in life. And, you know, and there are a lot of therapists that engage in that sort of simplistic life changing decisions as a way of solving your problems. And, that wouldn't solve her problem, right? She's a perfectionistic person. And so if it wasn't Instagram, it would just be something else. And also there's a lot of benefits to her using Instagram. Like for me, for with the podcast, I suffer sometimes with my perfectionism when it comes to the podcast. But uh, during those suffering times, if someone said like, well, just stop the podcast, I'd be, I'd be like, geez, you really just don't understand the bigger picture here. So I uh, quickly realized that that's a simplistic way of looking at it. I'm not going to tell her to to stop doing Instagram. And so the the trick was, how do we help her uh, with her Instagram sort of fame or use or or enjoyment and not have her suffer as a result, right? And so what it involved was um, helping her to understand where her thoughts are coming from be aware of where emotions are coming from, being aware of this of the sort of cognitions that she has about failure and about um, uh, you know making mistakes, and also another part of it uh, eventually, and I'll get more into the treatment later, involved helping her to um, actually just expose herself to making mistakes. So one of the things that we did was I just had her post things on Instagram that were terrible that like emphasized her nose, you know, like were bad angles of her 
of her nose or bad angles of her face or uh, were, um, you know, her, when her hair looked bad or something, you know, and, and she took to it pretty quickly. She's like, Oh, okay. And so, you know, as she did that, she's like, Oh, I get it. Like my idea of failure is actually not accurate. My idea of making a mistake is actually not accurate. I thought that failure was the worst. I thought that um, showing my nose was a mistake, but in reality, it's not. <laughs> like it's it's okay. It's fine. And sure, some of the things that I post aren't going to get as much love and attention as other things. But who cares? What's what is the what's the focus of my life? And this is where existential therapy comes in, which is just like. What is the purpose of my life? Is the purpose of my life to suffer and toil over Instagram or is it something else? And once people actually establish what that something else is, then it puts things into perspective. Okay, so let's go into the definition. Again, we're going to go to the patron zone soon, but I just want to go over the definition and prevalence here for a second. So what's the definition of perfectionism? So there are a lot of definitions of perfectionism in the literature, and it's not a DSM diagnosis, so therefore, it doesn't have a lot of precise definitions in the clinical clinical literature. So, um, but it, it is fairly it is a fairly well researched construct and does have a lot of definitions out there. But it's unclear exactly where the line is between what you know, with, with someone that ha- has perfectionism and someone that doesn't, if that makes any sense. But really, in my book, all, all things psychology-related are like that, uh, or most things, I should say. You know, like narcissism, it's like, where's the line between you having narcissism and not? It, it's, it's debatable. Anyway, perfectionism, uh, the definition is a personality disposition. So, so sometimes the, the, uh, uh, literature will talk about it as a personality disposition or a temperament or a trait or um, just a, a style of living. So just keep that in mind. But anyway, it, perfectionism is characterized by three different things. One is exceedingly high standards of your own performance. So with the client, she needed her Instagram to be per- perfect and she needed her face and body and nose and hair to be perfect. So she had exceedingly high standards of her performance on Instagram. Perfectionism is also characterized by number two, concerns about making mistakes. So this is where someone ruminates and worries about making mistakes. Um, she, the client was very worried about losing her audience on Instagram and she really ruminated and remembered all the different times that she had made a mistake on Instagram. Uh, number three, uh, lastly, perfectionism is characterized by concerns about the social consequences of not being perfect. So with this client, she was very worried about being rejected by people on the internet, being seen as a hack or being thirsty on Instagram or something. So as some of you might already detect is there's a lot of overlap between perfectionism and other concepts that I've talked about, namely narcissistic personality disorder, avoidant attachment, this kind of thing. Um, and there is, there's some overlap, but, but not tremendous. It's, it's not like, I would say that perfectionism is probably 20% overlapped with narcissism. 
So there are plenty of perfectionistic people that I would not put on the narcissistic, narcissistic spectrum. So again, as I was talking about earlier, the internet it has a lot of really funny things to say about perfectionism. You know, top 10 signs that you're a perfectionist, and then it'll just be like these really minor issues. Lots of celebrities are labeled as perfectionists. Um, Daniel Craig, Eminem, Gwyneth Paltrow, Beyonce, Adele, Steve Jobs, as I said, Madonna, Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian seems to be labeled with everything. She seems everyone on the internet di has diagnosed her with everything. I imagine Donald Trump and you know Hillary and Obama have a similar uh, fate. Um, basically, all these people in the articles that I read were people like Eminem has you know he's a perfectionist. Again, it's not a DSM diagnosis, so it's fine to throw that word around for the most part. Uh, in the I'm not as upset about people throwing around the word perfectionism as I am about people throwing around narcissistic personality or antisocial or psychopathy or sociopath or something. But, but anyway, that people seem to not be in line with the literature in that they basically just look for any performer who really cares about their product and labels them as a perfectionist. Eminem and Beyonce, these performers are, you know, they're very interested in making sure that they're, their art is is good, and because that's what people want—that people want a good, uh, you know, product—and and they really care about their art. And so, just because someone really cares about their art doesn't necessarily mean they're perfectionist. Um, it could very well mean that they are, but you know, it could also just mean that they're just a really good artist and they really care about their art. And that doesn't mean you're perfectionist. Perfectionism, again, you have to have excessively high standards for yourself. You know, Beyonce uh, really caring about her next album and, you know, spending a year or two on that album uh, and putting in, you know, good work but not breaking her back over it, I wouldn't call that excessively high standards. I would just call that like, well, that's kind of like her job, isn't it? And she cares about her art. So you really need to have like excessively high standards where where most people would be like, Oh, come on. Like you're, you're not going to achieve that. You know, that's not going to happen. You know, um, you know, some of you might already be saying that about me. It's like, come on, Kirk, like there's a lot of podcasts out there. Uh, the chance that you're going to produce the definitive episode on perfectionism, that, that's pretty excessive, don't you think? And so I would agree with that. Um, you also need to have like excessive concerns about making mistakes. Again, if you're Eminem and you're making your next album or something, and you're, you know, you, you don't want to make mistakes, but you just have the normal range of worry about making mistakes and the normal range of doing things to account for uh, mistakes, then you're not a perfectionist. You, you, no one wants to make a mistake, <laughs> right? So you really have to have excessive concern about making a mistake. Um, and also you need to have excessive concern about the social consequences of not being perfect, uh, to the point where you really suffer, you know. Um, for example, Stanley Kubrick is a good example of this. Uh, now, maybe Eminem and um, you know Beyonce and all the others, maybe they're maybe they do suffer from it. But I, I in the articles that were written about them, they didn't give any evidence like this. But with Stanley Kubrick, you actually do see this perfectionism um, uh, construct at play. If you're not familiar with Stanley Kubrick. Um, Google him. He has directed um, some of my favorite movies, uh, most namely uh, Clock, A Clockwork Orange, 
2001 Space Odyssey, um, Barry Lyndon, uh, other movies like that. So he was, uh, in The Shining, for example, he was famous for uh, being a perfectionist and suffering from his perfectionism. He wasn't just a director who, you know, really cared about his, his movies. He cared too much. And people around him would say, Stanley, you care too much. You're, you're, you're ruining your life because you care too much. Like, if you just ratcheted it down a little bit, people would still love your movies. In fact, they might like them more, and you wouldn't be suffering so much. And he was famous for shooting many, many takes just to get things right. For example, in The, in the, the Shining, he broke apparently a world record by shooting the same scene 148 times. <laughs> And I think it's just this little scene between the old man who has the psychic powers and the kid. There's, there's just a conversation they're having like in the kitchen or something. And when I watch this scene, I'm like, that's the scene that took 148 takes. Cause it seems so silly that you, you would need to do that that many times. But Stanley Kubrick was so concerned and so consumed with the anxiety about making a mistake and, not having the shots be perfect that he was like, no, we're going to do it again. Just imagine that being an actor or being anyone on that set 148 times. That probably took several days, I'm guessing. I don't know. And you're just like, again, we're going to do this again. And haven't we got it yet? Like, uh, so, you know, there was that. And he reportedly, again, suffered a lot and, had to take several years off from making films um, because he was paralyzed with the fear of making a mistake. Stanley Kubrick is, um, I think, semi-famous for the fact that there's blocks and chunks of time where he wasn't making any movies. When when he, people were just like, you know, so hungry for another movie from him. You know, t- today, you know, like Damien Chazelle and uh, Denis Villeneuve, you know, and another... Uh, uh, Villeneuve, Bell, um, the other directors, they, you know, they make a movie every couple years. Well, Stanley Kubrick in his time was like mega famous. He was one of the big ones, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, this kind of thing. And to not have anything come out was very strange. And that was because he was, uh, you know, in essence, metaphorically in a fetal position, uh, terrified by fear of of making a mistake, and so so he's a good example of an actual uh, famous person who suffered from perfectionism. Again, just because you're Madonna and you really care about your performances doesn't mean you're a perfectionist in terms of the clinical literature. Um, apparently, Winston Churchill talked about perfectionism. He said, "The maxim, nothing but perfection, may be spelled." paralysis. So I don't know if this is just the internet lying to me that Winston Churchill said this, but anyway, Winston Churchill recognized that, look, um, if you strive for perfection, then you're going to be paralyzed because it's, you know, too hard to achieve perfectionism and the anxiety that is accompanied, uh, that accompanies the striving for perfectionism will cause you to not do anything. All right, so what's the prevalence of perfectionism? Well, there's not much research, um, but of the research available, it seems like it, it might be fairly prevalent. 
for example, one study of uh, grade school girls found that 25% of them showed signs of perfectionism. And anecdotally, I would say that that figure is probably about right. I would say about 25% of people have some form of perfectionism, where whether or not it's beneficial or destructive, I would say that they're, they're probably somewhere on that uh, spectrum. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less, not quite sure. But when I think about all the people around me and the clients I've worked with, I would say that as far as the definition of perfectionism that I work with and that a lot of other researchers work with, I would say that a, a good portion of people actually do suffer from perfectionism. And, I, and t- most typically what I find is that of the perfectionists that I know clinically and personally, most of them are actually in the paralysis phase where they are not doing anything because they're terrified of making a mistake. There, there are a lot of closet perfectionists out there that I know of who are, um, re- they really want to make something. You know, they, they want to be a painter. They want to be a perf- photographer. They want to be a singer. They want to change their jobs. They want to do better at school. They want to do, they want to ha- have a better yard, they want to have a better house or whatever the thing is. You know, they're, they're really consumed with those thoughts, but they're so demoralized with low self-esteem or something that they never actually take actions or, or they rarely take action along those lines. They would frame it as they're procrastinating or they're being lazy, but really what's happening is they're paralyzed with perfectionistic ideas. You know, that they think, ooh, you know, I, I should work on that thing. And then they get a little bit down the road and they suddenly realize, oh my God, what if I screw up? What if no one likes this? What if this is mediocre? What if this ends up being really bad? And then they have this tremendous amount of worry about that. And then they get, they stop, you know, cause like me, when I'm making podcasts, when you're terrified, it's hard to do anything, right? It's hard to do anything, particularly when it comes to artistic creative, you know, creative expression. It's hard to um, concentrate on that when you're dom- when your brain is dominated by worry uh, of any kind, let alone, you know, worry of perfectionism. So yeah, that's what I'm going to talk about today. I want to talk about the four different perspectives of perfectionism. I want to provide some other stories. I'm going to talk about Umberto for a little bit. Um, I'm going to talk about the history of perfectionism and outcomes. There's a lot of good and bad outcomes of perfectionism. I want to talk about the different measures. You know, in psychology, we have different psychological measures, psychological tests for perfectionism, uh, which illuminate different dimensions of perfectionism uh, or different types or different uh, aspects. There's There's a lot of really great research looking at the different aspects of perfectionism. I want to look at the causes. There are a number of different causes I want to get into. Temperament, personality, gender socialization, parenting, school environment, sports environment, culture, etc. I want to so that you know what what causes people, uh, particularly parenting. Parenting is a big cause of of perfectionism. I want to talk about, you know, some other random things, imposter syndrome, uh, sexual perfectionism. And then I want to go into the treatment and maybe even the self-treatment of perfectionism. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, 
Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're not a patron of the podcast yet, if you want to hear this full episode, along with hundreds of other deep dives into various topics, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. When you become a patron at patreon.com, you will get instructions on how to access all of our patron-exclusive episodes. So do that now, and you will probably not regret it, because these episodes are perfect, as I always hope that they will be. (laughs) All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Super cool of you to become a patron of the podcast. It really... Every, I get an email every time someone becomes a patron of the podcast, and it uh, helps me to feel good about myself when that happens. <laughs> I put a lot of effort in this podcast, and it's it's a great thing to get that um, sort of, I don't know, feedback that I'm doing something worthwhile. All right, so the different perspectives of perfectionism, there are four different perspectives that I can identify. The first perspective on perfectionism is from the cognitivists, from cognitive therapists. They basically believe that perfectionism is a result of irrational beliefs or irrational um, thoughts, like irrational fear of failure, meaning that someone has an an irrational fear or an overblown fear of failure. They're just like, what if I fail? What if I fail? And what a cognitive therapist would say is, okay, what if you fail? You know, let's walk ourselves through that. And they're like, well, what if I, you know, paint a painting and no one likes it? Okay. What if no one likes it? A lot of times when I'm doing this kind of work with people, what they will say is, well, I don't know. It just seems like it's going to be really bad. And I'll be like, well, unless you can identify a, a real consequence to, to you know, this, this thing, then I'm, I'm just going to say I'm not convinced that you have anything to be afraid of. Because a lot of people, they'll, they'll just have like this amorphous fear, like, well, what if I make a mistake? And then it just ends there. You know, they, they just ask that question. And beyond that, you know, the answer to that question is just this abyss of darkness and horribleness. And it's like, well, let's actually walk ourselves through this. You know, like with the client I was talking about earlier, you know, she's like, well, what if, I, what if I post something that's horrible? And I'd be like, okay, well, what if, let's say you post like the dumbest thing on Instagram that's ever been uh, posted. <laughs> um, you know, what happens then? Be like, well, uh, people would think it's dumb and they wouldn't like it. Okay, what else? And they, you know, she'd be like, well, um, I don't know, maybe some people would write some nasty comments or something. Okay, what else would happen? Uh, yeah, but I bet you my fans would probably forgive me because, you know, they're not assholes. Okay, so it sounds like worst case scenario, some people don't like your stuff, or let's say no one, and you get some negative feedback. How does that, how does that feel to you? And sh- people would be like, oh, um, I guess it's not that bad. (laughs) It's funny, you know, when I think about it, it's actually not that bad. So this is an irrational or an overblown fear of failure. It uh, is 
connected with deep roots and your childhood and this kind of thing. And so challenging those irrational thoughts can be very, very useful. And sometimes you need a therapist to do that, but sometimes you can do that on your own. Uh, cognitive therapists would also say that perfectionism is related to irrational self-doubt, similar to ir- irrational fear of failure. Or they would say that perfectionists equate perfect performance with self-worth, and they equate failure with being worthless. So this is an important aspect of perfectionism that, if present, needs to be attacked and addressed. You know, to to say, well. If I do awesome on Instagram, that means that I'm a worthy human being. And if I do terrible on Instagram, then that means I'm worthless as a human being. And they won't necessarily say those words, but they'll be basically thinking it. And so it's important to challenge those connections. Cognitivists would also say that perfectionists have a self-imposed standard that is unattainable and that they are... They have dichotomous thinking. So this is where people, it's sort of either or. It's like either I make something perfect and awesome or I am a total failure. And this is something you want to challenge. Perfectionists have an have irrational criticism on their personal performance. So I actually suffer from this one in that when, so Umberto and I have been in music projects together and there have been times when we'll record a song or something or an album and we'll listen back to it. And his songs, I'm like, oh, that song is so good. Great vocal performance, great song that you wrote, great arrangement. And we get to my songs and I'm like, oh, that song has so many problems with it. My voice sounds so stupid and everything's dumb. Like I, if I could go back, I would go back and change half the song. And Umberto would always turn to me and just be like, man, you really do beat yourself up about <laughs> about your songs. Because Umberto doesn't do that at all. He's just like, man, I love that song and it's great, you know. Um, now, Umberto has a whole other kind of perfectionism that he gets wrapped up in, like, uh, with his music. For example, so he is, a, he's kind of like an Elton John character. He writes songs on piano. Um, he writes similar kinds of lyrics. And for a while, like, I don't know, a five-year period of time, he was flying down to Los Angeles to record with session musicians whom he hired and a, a studio that he hired and a, and a um, you know, engineer that he hired, a producer that he hired, and he was recording his piano songs. And when I first heard that, I was like, oh, man, how great is that? Like, finally, we get to hear like a a good production of some of Umberto's piano songs. And he's recording like 10 different songs. And he would, you know, just imagine flying down to California, paying all these people, you know, lots of money, lots of effort. And about a year in, I was like, okay, so you should be done with that CD yet. Um, We've talked about this on the podcast before, by the way. And he's like, oh yeah, soon, you know, it's almost done. And then uh, six months later, it'd be like, so is that, is that CD done yet? And he's like, oh yeah. um, Yeah, it's almost done. Well, fast forward, I don't know, six, seven years later, and he still hasn't finished this thing. And I think it's because of his perfectionism. He, uh, I'm guessing the tracks as they are right now are probably awesome. But to him, they're not perfect. And so, so he's, he hasn't released them. So he spent all that effort, all that money, and all that time on something that will never see the light of day. 
And I just find that to be just a, a crime because I assume that these recordings, as they are right now, without any post-production of any kind, even if with, even if some of them are kind of rough takes, just put that out there because I'm guessing they're, they're pretty good. Anyway, uh, cognitive therapists would say that perfectionists overgeneralize their failures. So the, you know, they'll say, oh, I, you know, I had that failure that one time and therefore I'm always going to fail, that kind of stuff. They have irrational fear of negative evaluation. So some perfectionists will be like, well, what if people don't like what I'm doing? Or what if, what if people, uh, you know, give me negative feedback or they, or they think that I'm mediocre. And again, you, you just sort of walk yourself through that. It's like, okay, well, what if people don't like it? Then what? You know, well, they just won't like it. Well, is what's the consequence to, to some people not liking what you're doing? Well, I guess they won't like it. Well, who cares? <laughs> you know, uh, every artist or every person who's ever done anything uh, with, enough audi- with enough of an audience, there's a percentage of, of them that will not like what you're doing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if that's, if, if making sure that 100% of the audience loves everything that you do is a requirement to do anything, no one would do anything, right? So anyway, um, cognitivists would say that uh, some perfectionists have a fear of not being the best. This is sort of a narcissistic thing, right? It's like, well, if I'm not the best, then I'm not going to do it. They have an illogical significance on the achievement of high standards, and they value only success, and they don't value mistakes. This is actually a big part of cognitive therapy for people with perfectionism, is helping them to value mistakes. You know, I guess in my own self-therapy, or maybe even with my therapist as well, uh, having the ability to say like, wow, that episode of my podcast, I really screwed that up. In fact, it was, I don't know how long ago, a few years ago, a couple years ago, when I did make an episode that was bad. It was um, hurtful to some people. And I took it down, actually. Um, it was a massive mistake. And I, I made another episode that I just said, I apologize. I, I think the next episode is just like, I'm sorry for what I did. <laughs> you know, um, I'm actually kind of, foggy on the details i probably have to listen to that episode to remember maybe i'm blocking it out but but anyway so i could have looked at that as like oh my god i'm a failure what am i doing with my life i shouldn't be doing this Uh, but with my own self-care i'm just like well live and learn i mean think about all the glorious lessons that were learned through that glorious mistake um I can always apologize too, you know. There's the the thing about being a therapist that, that I have come to know very very um well is that apologies are some of the most wonderful things we could do. Meaning that we have to make a mistake first in order to apologize. For example, with my clients, when I make a mistake, I now have a very quick process of transforming the acknowledgement of that mistake from denial and shame to a glorious opportunity for an apology. So I will go to a client or a supervisee for that matter, and I'll just be like, I screwed up. Uh, I tried to do this and I made a mistake based on these reasons. Uh, 
and that's my fault and I'm sorry. And I'm going to try not to do that again because I care. That is, uh, you know, normal. It's a normal process of life. And the more contact you have with someone, the more chance something like that's going to happen. And when I do that, I feel closer to that person. They feel closer to me. And trying to avoid mistakes and therefore apologies is, I, I think, missing an opportunity for uh, some of the most meaningful experiences you could have in your life. This could be to your spouse or your children or your parents or your boss at work or whatever. You know, the ability to just be like, I am sorry for that. I take full responsibility. Um, I, you know, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm just really sorry. Um, a similar thing happened to me, uh, poignant moments of my life around apologies was when I first became a therapist, I was overwhelmed by the paperwork. I was working at an agency. And as all you clinicians out there who work at agencies or hospitals or something, you know that there's just so much paperwork, particularly when you first start out because you don't know how to do it fast. And so I just had these files just piling up. And this is back in the day when they didn't use computers for such things. So we just had like physical files. And I was getting so bothered by all the paperwork piling up that I was like, okay, I need to, I need to catch up on my paperwork, but I don't want to be in the office and I don't have enough time in the office. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the files home with me. And this is a big no-no, obviously, to bring medical files out of the facility and drive home with them is a big problem. But I thought, well, what's the chance that anything's going to happen? I mean, no one's going to know. And because, because at that time I I had my files in my own office, we each, you know, each office, we had our own desk and I had my, and so it's like, what's the chance someone's going to go in my office, look in my desk for my files? Well, that's what happened because a client had a so-called crisis. It wasn't a real crisis, but it sounded like a crisis to the agency and I wasn't there. And they went to my office, looked for the file. They couldn't find it and were running all around. And this is before cell phones. <laughs> you know, I'm sounding like it's ancient, but this is, I don't know, late 90s. And so they couldn't get a hold of me. And when they finally did with my home phone, I was like, oh, my God, what? And I was like, um, I have that file with me right now. I'm sorry. I brought it home because I was trying to catch up on my paperwork. And they were like, that is a massive problem. You, and I, and I was like, I know, I, I know you have, I know the policy and the rule is that we don't bring the files out of the office. And I I made a mistake. And so all weekend, I'm just mortified about like, okay, on Monday, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? You know, what kind of excuse should I come up with? But eventually I just got to the point where it's just like, just apologize. You made a mistake. You, you fucked up. And so that's what I did. I went to the office and I went right up to the executive director and I took full responsibility and I said, I'm sorry. And I, you know, there's no excuse and I'm just so, so sorry. And I, I really let people down with this, with the decision that I made and I'll never do it again. And I think the full apology that I gave to the executive director I think she was so surprised at how fully uh, apologetic I was that she just sort of went, oh, okay, that's fine. And then we never talked about it again. <laughs> I thought I was going to get you know raked over the coals. And, 
And I think she might have even had like a speech ready to go with me, you know, just like she was going to grill me about this or that. But because I came at her with such a full apology, which was heartfelt and was real, she was like, oh, all right, well, good. Let's move on with our lives. <laughs> so anyway, having an apology is a great thing. And, and it, when it comes to perfectionism, it's also a great thing. The, uh, the ability to just be like, um, you know, like with, like I said, with this podcast of just like, I'm trying to produce a perfect thing, which of course is silly, but I'm trying, I have high standards for myself, for myself. And I have worry about, about producing bad things. Um, but instead of letting that worry get to me and bring me down, I can transform that into just exhibiting how much I care. You know, you could say that, that whole thing with the podcast and taking that down and having a whole episode dedicated to apologizing is an outgrowth of my perfectionism. It's like I, I'm saying to the listeners, I care so much about this podcast that I'm willing to, you know, make a whole episode apologizing to listeners for having made a mistake. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember what I did <laughs> that caused me to apologize. You just, you just have to listen to that episode again. I think it was from a couple of years ago, 2016. Anyway, so that's how cognitivists see perfectionism. What about behaviorists? How do they see perfectionism? Well, behaviorists primarily look at the world through a learning lens. Uh, things like, you know, reinforcement and conditioning and habituation, trauma, this kind of thing. And so for behaviorists, the, the main perspective, there, there are many, but the main one that I can identify is that perfectionists have learned through experience <clears throat> that imperfection is really bad. So they probably had um, trauma when it came to imperfection, like their parents would punish them when they didn't do things perfectly or some other kind of thing. So they learned that when I am not perfect or when, you know, I don't do perfect things or when life isn't perfect, something bad is going to happen because, you know, through that repetition of those experiences, they become very afraid of imperfection. Similar to if a dog bit you when you were a kid, you're afraid of dogs, right? It's like every time you see a dog, your body remembers that experience of being bit and will be very afraid of dogs. Um, <laughs> I have a funny story about that. So, um, I, I have security cameras on my house. You know, we have one of those security cameras on the, on the front door and it, it is, um, triggered by movement. So when someone moves, um, you can, um, it, it starts recording and this delivery guy, this Amazon delivery guy was walking up to the house, um, and was going to put a package on my front doorstep. But just at that moment, um, I was walking out the front door and my dog ran out of the front door just to kind of run out into the front yard. And the delivery guy seeing the dog was terrified. <laughs> and my dog is not a um, aggressive dog at all. Uh, she likes to sniff people. She, she's mostly terrified of things. So, <laughs> um, but the delivery guy was, oh, shit, and started, like, when he saw the, and the, my dog was making kind of a beeline for him because she just wanted to know, like, ooh, what's this, what's this guy doing? And 
I don't know. I guess he had to be there. I don't know why I'm telling the story, but it was just hilarious to see. But one of the things that I, um, and, and he, he, anyway, you just have to see it, but he, the delivery guy, I figured, Oh, he, he must have been traumatized by dogs. That's why he's because he had such a physical like trauma reaction to seeing this cute little dog kind of trotting up to him that I, that most people I would imagine wouldn't have that reaction. They'd just be like, Oh, there's a dog coming. Um, I mean, for me, when I see a dog coming, especially when you, you know, their ears are down and their tails wagging, you're just thinking, Oh, you know, the dog is, is friendly. In fact, I, I want the dog to come to me. Um, but anyway, okay, I digress. So behaviorists would look at perfectionists as having a problem along those lines. And I actually had a client like this. The client was a teenager, but before I saw him when he was a young child, he had been infected with some sort of foodborne disease at a restaurant, some sort of deadly bacteria, and he almost died. And he spent months in the hospital. And there was a lot of worry in the family, naturally. As a young child in the hospital, he knew that he might die or that something very bad would happen, and there was a lot of anxiety around that. And he had to be kept very clean because his immune system was compromised at the time. And after this trauma for him and the family, he became obsessed with order and with um, things being organized really well. He wasn't obsessed with cleanliness, strangely, but he, he um, had a compulsion for things to be very orderly. And here we see that there's a lot of overlap with OCD, right? Um, you could say perfectionism is, or some, some uh, versions or some accounts of perfectionism are low-grade or just full-blown OCD. But anyway, he uh, was very interested in things being perfect, and um, he soon discovered, as th- this is me trying to surmise what his upbringing was like, uh, I surmise that he uh, later in life figured out that, look, I can't have everything be totally orderly because the world just doesn't work that way. And so he morphed his criteria. He, he took solace in things being very perfect, you know, because of the trauma that he went through, uh, because imperfection when he was a young, led to him being almost, you know, dying, almost dead. And so uh, when Y2K came around, this is obviously years ago, um, he became obsessed with having the perfect setup for Y2K. He was a teenager at the time. And um, for those of you who don't remember, when the clocks went from 1999 to, to the year 2000, there was legitimate and justifiable worries that there would be a lot of our infrastructure and whatnot would suffer for a while and we might experience a lot of really horrible things. And so some people thought that our society would completely shut down. It turned out that all those worries were for naught, but um, but they were justified at the time. I, I had friends who worked in IT at the time and they were like, yep, Y2K, it could be a bad thing. We just don't know because all these systems are set up for a two-digit year. And so we just, we just don't really know. Anyway, so he was obsessed with that too. And he uh, became very focused on having the perfect setup for Y2K. And he, you know, was a survivalist essentially at the, at, when he was a teenager. And it drove his parents crazy because that's all he focused on. He didn't focus on school. He didn't focus on um, 
following the rules or building his future. He, he was totally focused on being orderly for Y2K. And so the treatment for him was to make an, a, a very co- important connection with him, you know, develop a relationship with him. Um, and after that, then the treatment was to help him connect his early trauma with his current anxious perfectionism. That was a difficult task because he totally believed the notions involved in his perfectionism. Um, but what we worked on was I, I was telling him that, look, you can still be involved in the Y2K stuff. There's nothing wrong with preparing for Y2K because it's real. Something could happen. But you don't have to ruin your life in the process. So this took a while, but he eventually began to work on it. So in this instance, we see an example of what behaviorists would call learned anxiety, learned uh, fear of imperfection due to his early life, early childhood experiences. And uh, this is just, you know, one example. Other examples, I could imagine it's like your parents are addicted to a substance and they have very chaotic lives and you learn that imperfection can lead to very scary things. And so you're not habituated to things being out of control. And so as, as later in life, you become very fixated on things being perfect, either for yourself or other people. Um, that's an important thing to point out that I'll get into later. But perfectionism often applies to the self, like, you know, I need to be perfect. But perfectionism also can, uh, can be something that people impose on other people, in, including their own children or spouses. They will require their spouse or their children to be perfect in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but I'll get more into that later. Okay. So again, the cognitivist, the cognitive therapist would say perfection is a result of irrational thinking and therefore that thinking needs to be challenged and changed. Behaviorists would see it as a learned fear and that in order to overcome that fear, you have to learn that those that imperfection is not to be afraid of through exposure, essentially. And number three, uh, the humanistic or emotional researchers, therapists, they would see uh, imperfection or uh, perfectionism as a secondary result, secondary result of a general emotional trait or state like depression, anxiety, low self-esteem. So, for example, when you're suffering from low self-esteem, you might develop perfectionism to cope with those emotions. So humanistic people would see it that way. Emotion people would see it that way. All right. So we, we've done cognitive, we've done behavioral, we've done humanistic, emotional. Now let's do number four. This is psychodynamic attachment perspective. Um, I could go on and on about this, but in a nutshell, psychodynamic attachment people, relational, uh, intersubjective, interpersonal people would see imperfect, or uh, I still want to say imperfection, would, would want to see perfectionism as related to early relational experiences, mistreatment, abuse, neglect, this kind of thing, which results in a drive to achieve impossibly high standards to gain love and attention. So in other words, when you were young, you were deprived of some love and attention. And one of the ways you learned how to cope with that deprivation is to be as perfect as you can be. Uh, perhaps living up to your parents' standards so that you will get at least some attention from them. 
And that personality trait or that style of relating and attaching to other people is retained into adulthood. And then the person continues to have extremely high standards for themselves because they believe in order to gain attachment, in order to have secure attachment, I have to be perfect or I have to have my surroundings perfect. Okay. So what's my perspective? We've, you know, we've gone over the four major umbrellas of perspective. Well, I like all of them. I think all of them make sense to me. I hope it's clear in the way that I talk about them that, that they're all valid. But at the core, the, per, the core perspective that I find lacking in the literature is a, a, a model of understanding why this would happen for various different people, for all people who suffer from perfectionism. And for me, the, the way that I think about it after doing all this research is that at the core of perfectionism is an internal striving for high standards. So regardless of all the other ancillary associations or characteristics of perfectionism, at its core is an individual who has extremely high standards for themselves. Now, this can go in two different directions. It can go dysfunctionally or it can go functionally. It can go maladaptively or it can go adaptively. It can go um, destructively or it can go constructively. And so on the destructive side is when you have low self-esteem. So if you, for whatever reason, you know, and I'll get into the causes later, you have acquired a very strong sense of high standards for yourself or life or whatever. You, you, you want to achieve a lot. You want things to be perfect. You, you like it when things are a, a particular way and, and you just have this, you know, this internal drive. So that can go in two different directions. As I said, when you have low self-esteem caused by narcissistic injury or pressure from your parents or mistreatment or something, you, you have low self-esteem. Well, when you match up uh, a, an, an internal drive for high standards for yourself and other people, and you have low self-esteem, well, you have a hard time achieving those high standards. And even if you do achieve those high standards, you tend to look at it and look at it in a negative way. And so this leads to all the bad associations that we think of when it comes to perfectionism, self-doubt, worry, paralysis, imposing perfectionism on others. I believe that when people have an internal striving for high standards and they have low self-esteem, they believe they can't achieve those standards, so they impose those standards on other people. So you can imagine, say, you're a, you know, you, you have a guy and he's married and he has kids, married to a woman, he has kids, and he has extremely high standards for himself, but he believes he cannot attain that because he has low self-esteem due to the mistreatment that he went through. And so he requires his wife to be perfect in all ways because in his mind, he's like, well, if my wife is perfect, then then I will be okay because he, you know, people like this will equate their high standards with safety and this kind of thing. Or they'll look to their children and they'll say, okay, I'm going to make my kids perfect. I know I can't be perfect because I'm actually not a very good person deep down, even though they are a good person, but they believe they aren't. And so they turn to their family members as sort of proxies for perfectionism. Now, if you match up the internal striving for high standards with moderate or, you know, healthy self-esteem, then you, uh, you know, meaning that the person is not high on the narcissism scale, um, even if their parents did pressure them, 
there was love and warmth accompanying the pressure, etc. So this person uh, acquired an, an internal striving for high standards based on their childhood, but they also have good self-esteem. And this leads to what I was talking about, I would say, with my experience with perfectionism, which is occasional self-doubt, but not debilitating, and high motivation to achieve things, and, you know, success in actually getting things done. I would like to think that um, I've achieved some success in my strivings for high standards, you know. When I started this podcast, I had no idea what I was doing, and I had a vision in my head of achieving something that I would be proud of. And in the beginning, um, that wasn't happening. <laughs> and so, uh, but I believed in myself enough to say, well, I'll just keep going and um, either it won't work out and, you know, it'll be fun to have gone along the way or it'll work out and I will be proud of myself. And I will say that that's the case for me because I have good enough self-esteem because my parents raised me well enough. Um, and I'm not, you know, extremely high on the narcissism scale. So I think that's the model that is important for when we're looking at perfectionism. You have, for whatever reason, you were raised in a way which gave you high standards for life, and you're driven. You, you, you want to achieve things. You want things to be, uh, you know, of high quality or something. And if you have low self-esteem, then the low self-esteem gets in the way of you achieving your high standards and it sort of screws it up and gives you a complex about it and it turns into a destructive process for you and other people around you. But if you match up that drive for high standards with self-esteem, then it seems to, to actually help. Now, it's not universally a good thing, right? Because um, when you're sort of in a constant cycle of achieving high standards, you're going to potentially have other problems, right? Like stress and relationship problems and, and a lack of focus on the important things like attachment and that kind of stuff. So it's not like it's universal that high standards is, is a wonderful thing. But seemingly, according to research, which, which I'll get into in a second, um, there are perfectionism versions that seem to not be associated with a lot of the bad outcomes. Okay, so let's go into a short history of the concept of perfectionism. So there's not a lot of talk about perfectionism in the clinical literature. It's one of those pop psychology terms or popular terms, I should say, that for whatever reason, psychologists haven't really looked into until fairly recently. Most of the research that I found on perfectionism has been done in the past couple years. In fact, I would say the vast majority of the articles that I found were published this year. I don't know if that's just because of the database I was looking at or whatever, but I think perfectionism is becoming much more of a trend recently in the literature. And 10, 20, 30 years ago, I don't, I don't think for whatever reason it was, it was important to, uh, to look at for psychologists. Um, I, th I just think there's certain concepts that traditionally psychologists have looked down on and said, ah, oh, you know, that's, that's for the general population. That's not serious enough for us. And I feel like today psychologists are becoming much more um, non-ivory tower. You know, there, there are people researching things like, like I was on a dissertation committee recently, a woman in a doctorate psychology program at Antioch. She was studying the experience of people playing Sims. You know, Sims, the game where you 
are a person and you have a house and you have family and you have a job and you have furniture and all that kind of stuff. Well, there are certain therapeutic implications for playing that game. There's identity implications and grief and loss implications because your characters will actually die if you have the settings set so that that's possible. And she did her entire dissertation on that. And she's actually a part, she was a part of a group of researchers at Antioch who focused on things like this, video games and other kinds of stuff for their dissertation. And that's a big deal. One, that they would choose that. And two, that their dissertation committee and their faculty and the program would allow them to do such a thing. So, uh, so yeah, anyway. So there hasn't been a lot of talk until recently. That's anecdotal, though. I haven't really done a full review of everything that's ever been written for sure. But I think that the first known popularization in our field about the concept of perfectionism was by Karen Horney in 1951. Some of you people who have been listening to the podcast a long time might know that I made an episode in which I talked about Karen Horney, that her last name, her last, she's German. Her last name is spelled Horney, but in German you pronounce it Horney. <laughs> and so I made an episode once referring to her as Karen Horney the entire time, which was uh, funny to a lot of listeners. But anyway, Karen Horney, 1951, German psychoanalyst um, during the 30s. Uh, she didn't like the fact that the Nazis were getting power, so she moved to Chicago and then to Brooklyn. And she talked about, in 1951, the tyranny of shoulds. So she was talking about how, the, you know, when we should ourselves to death, we are, you know, experiencing the tyranny of shoulds, like, I should be better, I should be perfect, I should get straight A's, my podcast should be the most popular podcast of all time, etc. These are debilitating, you know, domineering ideas in our brain that aren't very helpful. She didn't use the term perfectionism, but that's basically what she's talking about. And she believed that this personality trait prevented people from actually achieving something because they were hampered by this tyranny of shoulds and would become demoralized and paralyzed by it. Albert, Albert Ellis, the creator of REBT, also talked about it in the 1950s around the time of Karen Horney. He wrote about musts. So, he, so Horney wrote about shoulds and Ellis wrote about musts. You know, like, I must do well and win the approval of others or else I am no good. Um, so Ellis really loved to identify these sort of irrational thought processes, you know, very similar to cognitive therapy, and he loved to attack them. You know, he loved to talk with people about, like, um, why must you be good? Why must you be perfect? Tell, you know, convince me w that you need to be perfect for this. And, you know, he'd kind of berate his clients, but, but it worked, you know, because he had a good enough relationship with them anyway. And he came across as this, you know, real just just straight shooter, you know, tell me why. And I've actually used that technique with clients too, you know, they'll worry about something and I'll just be like, why are you worried about that? Pro prove to me that you should be worried about that because it, you know, doesn't sound like you have to be worried about it, you know, if you don't want to, um, you know, it's a loving way of confronting people. Okay. So that's a very brief history of the concept of perfectionism. Um, I would also say that in my research of the topic, I think more recently perfectionism has become a bit of a topic because 
schools and parents and children are becoming much more um, they're they're much more focused on academic achievement these days than they were in the past. Um, this is all anecdotal, and I'm guessing there's some research around this. But when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, for sure there was emphasis on grades, but it it wasn't that much pressure. You know, it was more like parents were just like, well, you know, do well in school and you'll figure it out. It was more hands-off. Today, I see parents, they know every little thing their kids are doing in school, every assignment, every grade. And although it's probably not a bad thing for parents to be involved, it's, it's probably just another style of parenting. But I think one of the, <clears throat> and com- accompany this with, a lot of people trying to raise their status of class. I I, I sort of feel like in the 70s and 80s, people definitely were trying to move up the ladder in terms of class. But I think that most people were just kind of happy to be middle class. They're just like, yeah, middle class is fine. Today, I find a lot of people who are just kind of on the cusp of middle and, you know, slightly above middle class are constantly trying to get there. You know, they're always trying to have the the right house. You know, they'll buy too much house because they're trying to show off that they're, they're not middle class. You know, what they will say is that they're middle class, but what they don't know is they're actually not middle class. Middle class is, middle class is actually quite poor compared to what people think middle class is. But anyway, um, so I just find that there's a lot of people really trying to raise the, maybe it's just Seattle too, because there's so much money or something. I don't know. But I just find that there's a lot of people, a lot of parents, a lot of kids are just super hyper-focused on grades. I also find that teachers kind of drive this too, because obviously teachers really care about their kids doing well in school. So anyway, there's this um, rising perfectionism, I think, that's happening and a rising concern about perfectionism because perfectionism can actually prevent people from doing well in school. Actually, that leads me to another story I'll tell you. It was actually a student of mine. She entered Antioch, and she was extremely smart, extremely driven. She's one of those students where pretty much right off the bat, I'm like, oh, I like this person. She's going to go far. She knows what she's doing. She's dedicated. She's smart. She knows how to communicate well with people. Um, she might even be a leader one day. You know, I, there's just certain people that I can tell that about. They just have a certain air about them. And she was one of those people. And I had her in my first quarter. I, ha- I was I was teaching a class that uh, was for first quarter students. And so one of the things I talk about in that class is you're going to be stressed out. You're entering graduate school. You're pretty gung-ho and you feel like things are going to be okay. But I'm here to tell you that in five weeks, you're going to, you're going to regret your decision to have entered graduate school because there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of emotional, you know, issues. I'm exaggerating that they regret their decision to enter graduate school, but you know, as a exaggeration of just how much stress emotionally they're going to be under for a lot of different reasons, which we won't get into. And sure enough, that happened to her, and she experienced deep anxiety and deep depression that was, in my view, and according to her, was based on a foundation of perfectionism. She couldn't handle turning in a paper or um, doing things in class that were not perfect, and she was paralyzed by that process. She wanted the paper, she wanted her paper to be the best paper that was ever written. And 
and she, you know, we talked for a while and she recognized that. And I would tell her, look, you know, you just got to graduate. You just got to turn that paper in. And, um, you know, writing a good paper doesn't make you a good or bad therapist. It just, it just means that you wrote a good or bad paper. You know, there are people who write terrible papers and are the best therapists on the planet. And there are people who write excellent papers and are terrible therapists. So, you know, and there are terrible therapists who are good people. So you don't, you're, I was sensing she was linking her self-worth to her success in graduate school and her abilities as a therapist, which is a really tall order for someone to do when they're in their first quarter of a graduate program. Um, I find that a lot of students have this problem. They're, they enter graduate school essentially with an unspoken expectation that they're already an excellent therapist, which of course makes no sense, right? And so I spend a lot of time telling students, look, right now you're a terrible therapist and you will learn, I will teach you and all the other instructors will teach you how to be a, how to be a mediocre therapist by the time that you graduate. And as you develop as a therapist, you will become better and better and better. Uh, so, you know, like I'm 20 some odd years into the profession and every day I get better and better and better. Well, by definition, that means I was worse last year as a therapist and 10 years ago, I was worse. And particularly when I was a graduate school, I was the worst therapist I had ever been. Now I was good enough for the, for most of the clients I worked with. But the point is, is that a lot of, uh, my point that I'm getting to here or that I've already said is that students enter the program. They think they're the, they're already the best therapist or they think they need to be the best therapist on the planet. And they sort of have that expectation. So I spent a lot of time saying, look, you're terrible. And just accept that embrace that you have no idea what therapy is and you have no idea how to be a therapist. That's okay. Why would it be any different? You've never taken a class on how to be a therapist yet. So of course, you are terrible. It's just embrace that and live in it and be okay with that. And so I did a lot of that with her, but it didn't really work in the end. And she ended up dropping out of the program, uh, tragically, because her perfectionism was so debilitating and so crushing to her that she would just lie awake at night staring at the ceiling, like worrying that she was going to turn in something that wasn't good enough, even though I was telling her, I know you're going to write a good enough paper. And I'm pretty sure she passed my class. Yeah, she passed my class, but I think eventually she dropped out because of the perfectionism anyway. So that is, so anyway, my, my larger point here is that I think that our society in the United States is becoming more perfectionistic when it comes to academics and really just all things involving children, you know, uh, the perfect birthday party, the perfect uh, outfit, the perfect college, the perfect dance recital, you know. Um, again, when I was a kid, there was some pressure along those lines, but not really. I mean, there people, when I grew up, everyone was terrible at everything. <laughs> and, you know, you tried to be good at things, but um, there was just a general lack of competition among us back then that no one really cared. Now, I just get the impression that, you know, there's a lot of competition. There's, of course, exceptions to that rule. And there's, there are plenty of teachers and coaches and everything who understand the, how to have a healthy balance. But anyway. All right. So let's go into outcomes. Now, 
there are a lot of bad outcomes when it comes to perfectionism. So if someone has uh, perfectionism and low self-esteem, this is, I'm using my model now, but if you have uh, high expectations for, you know, high standards and you have low self-esteem, then it can result in a lot of things. And I went over some of them earlier, but one of them is suicide. I talked about this in my deep dive on suicide. When you have high expectations, high standards, and low self-esteem, which leads to demoralization and anxiety and really um, lack of motivation to try to do anything because you're like, well, I'm not going to be able to achieve that, then this can result in depression and suicide. It can result in worry and anxiety and obsessionality and eating disorders and just general psychological distress, difficulty in school, mood disorders like depression, non-suicidal self-injury, OCD, negative affect, imposter syndrome, lack of motivation, stress, burnout, giving up, lack of satisfaction in life overall, fear of intimacy. That's interesting, right? That research has found that perfectionism can result in fear of intimacy. It's interesting. Um, and also procrastination, which, which I want to get into here more deeply because there's, there's, there's a fair amount of research l- looking at perfectionism and procrastination. Again, probably because there's a lot of parents and researchers who are concerned about students who are procrastinating in school, and then they target them and say, like, why are they procrastinating? And then they figure, oh, that person is perfectionistic. And so there's, um, I think, growing concern about kids doing well in school, which I'm not really quite sure if that's what we should be focusing on. Um, So procrastination has been found through research to impact a lot of different areas like school, self-care, like not getting medical treatment or doing your taxes. You know, like you're, you're thinking about doing your taxes and you're like, well, what if I don't get them perfect? You know, some people avoid, a lot of people avoid doing their taxes. I, I find it interesting how much people avoid taxes every year, even though it literally happens every single year, like clockwork. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, it, it's every year it happens and somehow people are like taken by surprise somehow. But anyway, um, so some people avoid doing taxes just because it's heartbreaking to pay taxes or they're, you know, worried that they're going to get audited or something. So that's a whole other sort of process. But some people are perfectionistic about their taxes. They need it to be perfect. And taxes are actually, especially if you're self-employed, it's really hard to be perfect with your taxes because there's so many forms and so many receipts and so many like weird credits and loopholes and, you know, accounting issues. And so, so some people avoid doing their taxes because of perfectionism. Um, and, uh, Many researchers claim that procrastination has been prevalent throughout the world in recent years. So again, this is that movement I'm hearing in the research literature where they're like, procrastination is a problem. Now, I'll say that um, it's a lot of Asians who are saying this, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I hate to say that, but a lot of uh, East Asian, Chinese, Korean, Japanese researchers are looking into procrastination because they're even more focused on school performance than we are in the States. But anyway, they'll say things like, procrastination is a significant problem in academia, with findings and studies on procrastination showing that between 70 and 95% of students procrastinate, 
and 50% of students procrastinate problematically in consistency. They'll also say, findings showing that approximately 20% of adults procrastinate in their daily lives generally, which, you know, doesn't really surprise me. Um, you know, as I said, uh, if, you ha- if you suffer from per- perfectionism, procrastination absolutely will happen uh, because like just with my process, right? When I was talking about when I become demoralized with the podcast, I'm prepping an episode or something and I sort of hit a wall and I'm like, oh, this isn't going to be perfect. Then I, I have an, I have an emotional experience that's very difficult to cope with. And so I walk away from the project because I don't know what to do. And I also am demoralized. And I think like, well, what's the point in moving on? I should just give up on this. And so that is, from the outside, you could term that as procrastination. I wouldn't term it as procrastination. Procrastination means like, I just don't want to do it, right? I'm just putting it off because I I just would rather not do that thing. You know, like sometimes I'll procrastinate about, taking the garbage out or something, you know, I'll try to stuff one more thing in the, in the garbage bin, even though I'm like, I should probably take this out. It's just me avoiding something that I'd rather not do. That's procrastination. When people are quote unquote procrastinating from perfectionism, I would argue that it's not procrastination. It's terror. It's anxiety. It's a self-esteem crisis, you know, but anyway. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm not going to go into that any further. All right. So again, there's a lot of bad outcomes. Like I said, suicide, OCD, eating disorders, anxiety, depression, burnout, giving up, fear of intimacy, procrastination. But there's a lot of good outcomes too. Like what I was saying, when you match up high standards with self-esteem, then you get a lot of other outcomes that are actually positive. Things like Lower stress has been found in the research. Research has found that people like this are more likely to absorb challenging new skills. Um, I would say that I'm kind of like that. I uh, like to do new things, you know, like um, uh, like I was talking about cooking, how terrible I am at cooking. Well, I've started to sort of dabble in cooking recently, <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, it, it's fun to, to do new things. What else, what other things have I done recently? Um, well, this was a while ago, but I bought a house that needed a lot of fixing up. And so I just, even though I knew nothing about it, cause I wasn't a handyman sort of person, I dove headlong into home improvement and, you know, over the span of four years or so, maybe longer, I learned how to do everything. I learned how to pour concrete, how to do tile, how to do HVAC, how to sweat pipes, how to install electricity. I did the, I redid the entire electrical in my house uh, by myself without any help. (laughs) And this is, you know, I've talked about this before. This is before YouTube. Now, uh, you know, God knows if it would actually uh, if an inspector actually looked closely at it, if <laughs> I'm sure they would find problems. But the point is, is that um, I had high standards. You know, I was like, I want the electrical in this house to be really good. I don't have the money to pay for an electrician. And, uh, but I have high self-esteem. I believe I can do this. You know, I'm, I'm going to make this perfect. And I would, I would think about it a lot, you know, as sort of um, obsessed on it uh, slightly, not in a bad way. But so, 
so again, when you have uh, good enough self-esteem, I would say, along with high standards, you, you know, lower stress, uh, ability to absorb new skills, psychological well-being, the research shows, higher self-esteem, higher achievement, greater satisfaction in life, and lower levels of depression. And I would say that's, that's all true for me. So the key, which I'll get into later, is how do we help perfectionists with their self-esteem so that they can make their perfectionism into a good thing rather than a bad thing? All right, let's go into the dimensions and measures. So there are three uh, measures, three psychological instruments, three psychological tests that are used primarily in our field to measure how perfectionistic somebody is. And all three of these tests have developed different subscales, different, different dimensions or aspects of perfectionism, which I find to be pretty useful. So let's get into that. So that's why I'm lumping dimensions and measures in the same uh, subsection here. So the first measure is called the Frost Multidimensional Perfectionism Scale, developed 1990. In this uh, test, there are six subscales. Uh, number one is high personal standards. This is perfection. This is the dimension of perfection. So, of these six subscales, perfectionistic people will have varying levels of each. So, one person might have high levels on all six. One person might have low levels on all six. One person might have high levels on one and low levels on the other five. So, think about it that way. So the first subscale is high personal standards. So this is the part of perfectionism in which one has a high positive self-concept and or having excessively high standards toward the self, meaning that, you know, I'm going to do what it takes to make this perfect. This is my version. This is, this is the dimension that I have in perfectionism. Like in terms of the stuff I've talked about before, it's high personal standards. I, I, the things that I do, I want things to be of high quality. Um, an example of this is in graduate school, I had been given a, uh, when I was getting my doctorate, um, I had been given an assignment to do a, a, you know, just a small research paper, say 10 to 15 pages on evolutionary psychology. And actually, I could choose whatever I wanted to do, and I did evolutionary psychology. And I could have spent, I don't know, a few days writing that paper and, and would have been fine. I would have been, I would have got a good grade and everything would have been fine. But once I started looking into evolutionary psychology, I realized that it was a really complicated subject. And what I ended up doing was dedicating like three or four weeks of my life learning about evolutionary psychology, and I wrote a 50-page paper. <laughs> and I told the teacher, like, I'm sorry, like, I'll, you, you don't have to read the whole thing, but um, you can just read the first 15 pages if you want. But I got a little obsessed with this. So it had to do with that. It's just like, if I'm going to write a paper on evolutionary psychology, it is going to be a good paper on evolutionary psychology. And you can actually, and then that turned into me beginning my sort of journey with evolutionary psychology. Some of the, some of you listeners might know that, that I didn't know pr previous to that. That was another thing to me too. At the time, I was just like, look, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right, you know, and I'm going to learn about this topic. So, um, and you can actually find that paper 
on the website. You can go to our website, psychologyinseattle.com, and go to the, I think, the other tab, and I think there's articles, and there's, an evolu- there's a critique on evolutionary psychology that I wrote, and you can actually read that entire paper. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, normal people would have just phoned it in because it's like, look, I have a lot of other things to do. But anyway, um, also just related to this, to this deep dive in and of itself. When I started out uh, with this, so I asked the patrons a while back what um, deep dives that they wanted me to do, you know, and the first one was narcissistic personality disorder, which I already did. Another one was suicide, which I also did. And I think number three was perfectionism, which was actually pretty surprising to me that everyone wanted me to talk about this. And I sat down to work on this deep dive. And I thought, well, you know, looking at the literature, it's not that complicated. You know, it's not, it's not as complicated as narcissism. It's not, a compli- it's not as complicated as suicide. So this will take me just a little bit of time, and the episode will be not that long, and it'll, it'll feel good. But because of my, what, you know, the Frost multidimensional perfectionism scale, subscale high, high personal standards, um, what that aspect of my personality did to me was I ended up working on it for a lot longer than I thought I would uh, do and reading a lot more material than I thought I would. So, so this subscale of perfectionism is related to high self-esteem, as, as I've been talking about. And it's also related to not procrastinating. It's also related to high expectations of academic achievement, which I can say, um, you know, I, I have had throughout my life. Aside, aside from college, when, when I went to my four-year university when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, um, I had decided that it was silly to spend so much time at school, and, I, and so I didn't spend much time there. But every, every other time besides that... Um, and my senior year, I also, I was already accepted into, but anyway, aside from that, I've, I've always had high expectations or high, uh, yeah, high expectations of academic achievement. I've always worked pretty hard in school. So high personal standards for most people, I would say, if that's, if that's all you have and you have high self-esteem, then this just means that you're very driven and that you'll have uh, those, that kind of lifestyle that can actually be a problem sometimes because you'll forego other important needs of your life. But, but it's not associated with a lot of the negative outcomes of perfectionism. Um, okay, number two, sub, number, number two dimension or subscale in this measure is preference for order and organization. This, is, this dimension is also associated with beneficial perfectionism. It might be typified by the statement, I like things to be orderly and organized. So it, this is the version of perfectionism that is often talked about on the internet. People equate perfectionism with things being orderly, and it is a component, but it's just one of six. This is also me. I like things to be very orderly. I like my house to be orderly. Uh, for example, I love to get my inbox and my email to zero. I uh, frequently am able to completely address every email. If you've ever emailed me on the, on the podcast, you realize I'll email you back pretty quick because I find that it, there's, a, there's a very clear satisfaction to me when I have 
addressed everyone's email, whether it's listeners or family members or work people or whatever. You know, I've I've dealt with all the email and it's clean. You know, I've dealt with all my like as soon as I get something in snail mail, I address it right away. It's it's a high drive for order and organization. I I love to be organized, <laughs> so. Uh, that is so. I, I have these two dimensions: the high personal standards and the preference for order and organization. Okay, so the, the next four are actually associated with negative things. So the the next four dimensions are more the bad side of perfectionism. So number three is concern over making mistakes. This is a negative reactions. Uh, this is a negative reaction when you make a mistake. You think about mistakes as total failures, um, and when you make a mistake, you think everyone will reject you. So this is part of that uh, irrational belief system or learned uh, uh, trauma, learned you know through behaviorism, you've learned that making a mistake means that something very bad will happen to you. And this is typified by anxiety and um, saying to yourself, I, I better not screw up, you know, because if I screw up, something really bad will happen. <clears throat> so, you know, for me, not so much. I, I don't have this. I mean, maybe a little bit, but it's never, you know, stopped me from really trying things. Um, you know, I tried this podcast. I basically failed at this podcast and made many mistakes in the first three to five years. But, it, you know, I kept going. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I, I don't have this aspect of perfectionism, this, this massive concern over making mistakes. Um, number four is doubting of actions. So this is distrustful actions toward the quality of your outcomes. So this is basically typified by the statement of, I'm going to screw this up, right? So this is the dimension of perfectionism where you're, you're just convinced like, look, if I do something, it's, it's not going to work well. And, and at my darker moments, like when I was talking about prepping for different podcast deep dives, I'll have this. I'll, I'll just be like, oh, I'm going to screw this up. This isn't going to go well, you know, but it's brief and it doesn't last very long. But if people have a lot of that, then that could be quite debilitating, right? Number five is perceptions of parental criticism. So this is typified by the statement, if I screw this up, my parents are going to grill me about it. And number six also has to do with parents' perceptions of high parental expectations. This is the dimension of perfectionism that you know, people believe that they can't meet the high levels of parental expectations. So this would be typified by the statement, my parents expect me to not screw things up. So, yeah, for me, and according to research, uh, the first two are in general associated with good things and the last four are associated with bad things. So again, those six, six subscales in the Frost Multidimensional Perfectionism Scale are high personal standards, number one. Number two, preference for order and organization. Number three, concern over making mistakes. Number four, doubting your, your actions, doubting of actions. Number five, perceptions of parental criticism. And number six, perceptions of high parental expectations. So they say perceptions of parental criticism and perceptions of high parental expectations because we're, it's not always true that the parents are actually doing that. They often are, but it's not always true. Okay, so that's the frost measure. 
uh, we have two more measures that are talked about in the literature and used quite a bit. The number two is the Hewitt multidimensional perfectionism scale. So we're just going to call this Hewitt. Uh, the first one is the Frost one, and the second one is the Hewitt one, developed by Hewitt and Flett in 1991. This might be the most popular one. I, I hear this one talked about the most, probably because it only has three subscales instead of six. And those are, number one, self-oriented perfectionism. These are unrealistic standards placed on oneself to be perfect, like I must be the best in my class. This is the one that I... So so this one, the self-oriented perfectionism, it really depends, again, on your self-esteem. If you have have a high self-oriented perfectionism and you have good self-esteem, then research shows that you can have a good life, you can have a lot of high life satisfaction, Um, you even do better in school because you have a high motivation for studying because you have high standards and self-esteem. People with this trait will have high self-efficacy, meaning they're independent and they are likely not to be depressed. So, but if you have high self-oriented perfectionism matched up with low self-esteem, then you can have bad things. The number two dimension here is other-oriented perfectionism. So these are unrealistic standards for others to be perfect, like your spouse or your kids. And research has found that this leads to serious problems, mistrust of others, anger, loneliness. Uh, An example of a character like this in in movies are the J.K. Simmons character in Whiplash. J.K. Simmons won an Oscar for this. So in Whiplash, you have the jazz teacher who requires everyone else to be perfect, right? And is very abusive in that process. So we can imagine that other-oriented perfectionism is is not usually a good thing. Now, I will say that if other-oriented perfectionism is done in a light way and done with love, I can imagine that actually being just fine. But it often is not. And the third Hewitt subscale is socially prescribed perfectionism. This is the belief that others have unrealistic standards for them. So typified by the statement, everyone else expects me to be the best in my class. Or society expects me to be thin. Or society expects me to have perfect boobs or something, you know, this is socially prescribed perfectionism. And of course, you can imagine that this kind of perfectionism is not associated with good things. It's particularly associated with all the bad outcomes that we've already talked about, eating disorders, depression, suicide, test anxiety, that kind of stuff. So, uh, so again, those are the Hewitt three scales. You have self-oriented, other-oriented, and socially prescribed or you know, society, uh, or, you know, society is pressuring you to be perfect, or that's how you feel things are. And people have different amounts of, of all three. So you could have someone who has high amounts of all three, they have high self oriented, high other oriented, and they feel very pressured by society to be perfect. Whereas other people will just have one, like with me, I have a lot of self oriented perfectionism, but I don't require other people to be perfect. And I don't, Um, think that society is pressuring me that much to be perfect. The third uh, measure here is the Stober and Otto uh, 2006. Um, Actually, I'm not sure if this is a measure or just a proposed dimensions, but anyway, 
Um, these are popular, popular and talked about in the literature as well. So they just have two dimensions. They have one, perfectionistic strivings, and two, perfectionistic concerns. So let me get into this for a second. So the first dimension out of two that, that Stober and Otto have is that people strive to be perfectionistic. So this is often associated with the good side of perfectionism, with high personal performance standards, a self-oriented striving for perfection. And it's correlated with a lot of those positive psychological outcomes, like high motivation for school, high motivation to achieve things, um, positive affect when achieving, you know, feeling good when you achieve things, intense focus on problem solving, low procrastination, academic achievement. And this is, you know, like I said, my version of perfectionism is, is I strive for perfection. And perfection is a bit of a funny word. It's not like I strive for perfection, but I, I strive for things to be as good as I can make them. But it can be a problem, right? If, the, if, if someone doesn't have good self-esteem and they have a lot of perfectionistic strivings, um, then they would have problems, right? So there's that. All right, so number two dimension is perfectionistic concerns. So this, these are concerns about being perfectionistic. So they're delineating that because if you strive for high standards and you're, act, and you're actively striving for that, then a lot of good things can happen. But if you're concerned, then you're not actually striving. You're not actually doing anything for it, right? I think that's why they use that language. So these uh, perfectionistic concerns includes a lot of different things, feelings of a discrepancy between expectations and results. Like um, after you do something, you're like, oh, I didn't do well enough. You know, I have a version of this when I look back at the music I you know, have recorded in the past. I'm like, oh, that song, I should have done it better. So that's a concern. So I'm not striving. I'm not out there actually correcting that problem. I'm not re-recording those songs but I'm just looking back and regretting. That's a perfectionistic concern. Doubts about actions. I've talked about this already. You know, things like I won't do well enough. You know, I'm, I, I sh- I'm not even going to do it because it's, I'm going to screw it up. Concerns about making mistakes, concern about conforming to socially prescribed perfectionism. So in the, in the Stober auto dimensions, you have the striving for perfectionism, which is more the positive side, and you have all the the negative concerns of perfectionism in the second category. So these this side is associated with all those bad ac- outcomes, depression, eating disorders, low academic success, feel, fear of failure, test anxiety, that kind of stuff. Okay, and there are other typologies. Uh, people talk about normal perfectionism or adaptive perfectionism, clinical perfectionism, this kind of thing. But anyway, so just to review the different dimensions and measures, we have the frost dimensions, uh, six subscales. Again, those subscales are high personal standards, preference for order and organization, concern over mistakes, doubting actions, perceptions of parental criticism, and perceptions of high parental expectations. Then we have the Hewitt three dimensions, one, self-oriented perfectionism, two, other-oriented perfectionism, three, socially prescribed perfectionism. And then we have the Stober-Otto 2006 dimensions, two of them perfectionistic strivings, striving and doing things to achieve things, and number two, perfectionistic concerns or worries 
and negative worries about uh, not being good enough and, and striving for perfectionism in a negative way. Okay. So those are the different dimensions that are proposed in literature. And I, I like all of them. I, I think thinking about all of them is, is important. Um, you know, the, the frost dimensions really break out the different dimensions, I think, pretty well. You have, you know, high personal standards and a preference for order. And I'm like, okay, those are two things that I can relate to. Concerns over mistakes. Eh, I could see how that would be a problem, but I don't, you know, I don't really have that. Doubting of actions. Again, I could see how people would have that. I don't have that. Perception, you know, parents criticizing me or high expectations for my parents. I don't have that either, thank God. Um, the Hewitt uh, dimensions also make sense. Self-oriented, other-oriented, and socially prescribed. <clears throat> All those, you know, make sense when observing people. Um, and then the Stober Auto, perfectionist strivings and perfectionist concerns. I find this to probably be the least useful because it's like the two different dimensions are too general. But anyway. Okay, so let's get into the causes of perfectionism. There are seven causes that I can come up with supported by research. Number one is temperament. Number two is personality. Number three is gender socialization. And number four is parenting. Number five is, number five is school environment. Number six is sports environment. And number seven is culture. So let's go into number one, temperament, as a cause for perfectionism. They have found through research that negative affect is associated with the development of perfectionism. In other words, if you are born with difficulty with distress. So research shows that people are born with certain temperaments, right? Some kids are very easygoing and some are not. Some have a lot of worry and some do not. Some are very outgoing and some are not. And so there's certain personality traits, right? Well, if you're born with the tendency for negative affect, meaning that you, you're not easily soothed by your parents and you cry a lot or you cry more than average and you're angry more than average, this kind of stuff, and you have a poor self-concept, then this is ripe ground for you to develop perfectionism. Basically, the theory goes is that if you enter the world feeling bad, then you might develop in perfection. You might develop perfectionism to cope with that, with those bad feelings. Cause you're like, well, if I'm perfect, then I'll feel better. That kind of thing. Number two cause of perfectionism is personality. In other words, as you develop your personality through the lifespan, perfectionism can be an outgrowth of your overall personality. And whenever we study personality, we look toward the big five measures. The big five personality dimensions are openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And what they find is that neuroticism and conscientiousness are associated with perfectionism. Neuroticism is the... Um, it means that you're prone to stress like worry and anger and depression you tend to have unstable emotions, and this is more associated with bad perfectionism. Similar to temperament, right? If, if you were born with negative affect, if you're born neurotic or you develop neuroticism, meaning that you're you know, 
on average more stressed out than the average person, then you're more likely to develop perfectionism. Not necessarily, you know, a lot of neurotic people, neurot, you know, people who suffer from neuroticism uh, are not perfectionistic, but again, some people will develop negative perfectionism as a way of coping with those bad feelings. The other big five personality trait associated with perfectionism, as I mentioned, is conscientiousness. So conscientiousness, conscientious people are organized, they're dependable, they're self-disciplined, they like a good plan, they're focused, and um, this is associated with the good part of perfectionism. So this would fit me. This episode is basically turning into an episode about me talking about how awesome I am, which um, is not comfortable, but I I think it's useful to make those connections personal for you listeners so that you can kind of make this into a real thing. And I'm sort of using myself as a case example. So um, anyway, but I am a conscientious person. I'm highly organized. I'm very dependable. I um, never show up late or very rarely. If I say I'm going to do something, you know, if I make an appointment with someone seven months in advance, I will be there. Like no, I've missed in my life, probably like 25 different appointments in my life, you know, flaking on things. It's very rare for me to flake on things. I, um, I'm coming up on my 30th high school uh, reunion and no one really wanted to do it. It's coming up in a year from now. And I found that of the people in my class, my graduating class, we have about 400 people graduating from my class at Isqua High School. And I just said, and I sort of joined the group of people that said, okay, let's plan it. Because the 20, we had like, it was basically like a, a committee of like 10 people who planned the 20 year. But it basically just came down to me and another person and we we planned it. This year, everyone expected the same people to do it, but everyone was kind of flaking, kind of. And so I just decided I'd do it myself. So I'm planning my 30-year high school reunion all by myself, and and I'm fine with that. I don't um, begrudge that at all. I'm just like, um, let's do this thing. (laughs) You know, someone's got to do it. And I love high school reunions. Uh, I love meeting up with all those people and seeing all those old friends and Um, you know, so anyway, uh, again, this is an episode where I just brag about myself (laughs) apparently (laughs) anyway. Yeah. So conscientiousness, if you're organized, dependable, self-disciplined, focused, kind of anal, I guess that's the bad side of conscientiousness is that you don't like things being out of order. Like you need, like, um, I went to Paris last year and I had the whole thing planned out. You know, I, once we were there, I was kind of thrown off because you just can never account for reality. But, but I liked to plan. I like to plan things quite a bit. And um, so the downside to conscientiousness is that you have a hard time with disorganization and it stresses you out. Um, I'm not that bad, but, uh, but definitely that, that's a downside to things. Um, and I get probably overly angry at people when they're not dependable. Anyway, so... So again, when we look at personality, uh, neuroticism, prone to stress, obviously if you were traumatized, mistreated, that's going to play into your neuroticism, then you're more likely to develop maladaptive perfectionism. Whereas if you are were raised well enough and you're conscientious 
and you, you know, for some reason developed high personal standards, then in all likelihood, you're, you're going to uh, combine all those personality traits into being organized, driven, um, high achieving, that kind of stuff. Okay. All right, so we talked about temperament, we talked about personality. Let's talk about gender socialization as a cause of perfectionism. So there's not a lot of research in this area, but there is some. For example, girls are socialized to have perfect bodies and perfect skin and perfect hair, etc. And this can influence the development of perfectionism in women. Whereas men are socialized to not ask for help. Research by Abadali et al. 2017 found that male students with socially prescribed perfectionism were more likely to engage in self-concealment. Remember socially prescribed perfectionism? That's that dimension of you have self-oriented, other-oriented, and socially prescribed, meaning that society is prescribing perfectionism for you. That's how you feel about things. When you feel that society is forcing you to be perfect, then you're more likely to conceal bad things about yourself, which means you're less likely to ask for help from other people, which means that you will lead to, this will lead to higher perfectionism and bad perfectionism and bad outcomes. And so when it comes to research and gender, there's not a lot, but it seems that uh, different aspects of socialization for each of the, um, for the various genders uh, can play a role potentially in the development of of perfectionism. Some people on the internet are talking about how perfectionism is mainly a female thing, and that is ridiculous. Uh, males, in my experience, have just as many, uh, just as high of a rate of perfectionism as women do. Um, part of the reason why we don't really know prevalence by uh, gender or even in general is because, like I said, it's not a highly researched area. So, you know, we just... Uh, or I didn't come across that article. It's hard to believe because I read hundreds, but anyway. Um, all right. So we've talked about temperament. We've talked about personality. We've talked about gender socialization. Let's talk about parenting. So parenting is a big part of personality development, obviously, and a big part of the development of perfectionism in people. So if so, in, in one dimension, we can look at parenting is the spectrum of anxiety that the parent has. So, um, in the literature, we call on one end of the spectrum, we call it anxious parenting or anxious rearing. And these are parents who worry about imperfection in general, including their children. So, these parents have the other oriented perfectionism, right? These parents have perfectionism themselves, but they are pretty much only perfectionistic about their child's behavior. So when you're perfectionistic about your child's behavior, what do you do? You know, because children are not perfect, right? They act in all sorts of weird ways. But if you want to make your children perfect, you have to control them, right? So let's say the kid is not eating right at the table. Well, you would yell at them to make them eat properly, right? Uh, this is a part of anxious parenting because you're ang you, it makes you anxious to see your children not doing something perfect. And I put perfect in air quotes. Or if the child is doing their homework, the parent might do the homework for the child to make sure that the homework is perfect because the parent is terrified that the child is going to turn in something that isn't perfect. Or when the child is doing a chore like vacuuming or washing the bathroom, 
The parent will hover over the child and direct them, micromanage them, or even just do the chore for them. So again, this is called anxious parenting or anxious rearing, and the results are that the child becomes deathly afraid of making a mistake, partly because they've never been allowed to make a mistake. You know, when you give a kid the ability to do their own homework on their own, then they're inevitably, they're inevitably going to make mistakes and they're going to realize, oh, making mistakes is okay. You just pick up and you move on. You move forward. You do your best. And, and if, you know, your best is worth a C, then that's great. And you just, you just move on with yourself. But when parents prevent kids from experiencing those mistakes, then the kids become terrified of the unknown and they become terrified of mistakes. And so when you are an anxious, other-oriented, perfectionistic parent, then your children are more likely to become self-oriented, anxious parents uh, or anxious adults themselves, or even other-oriented because they want to deny their own perfectionism and project it onto someone else. Um, This also results in children believing that they can't do anything without someone's help. So they have low self-esteem. And so, again, this will tie into those bad outcomes of perfectionism. So, yeah, um, I do not have this one. (laughs) My parents were not anxious parents. They did not micromanage me at all. And as a result, I have become extremely accustomed to making mistakes in my life. Like I, one example was I ran for student body treasurer when I was in high school and had really no guidance on how to write a proper speech and, and how to um, get people to vote for you even. And so again, because of my high personal standards and my high self-esteem, I just sort of dove headlong into this process without knowing what I was doing. And I um, (laughs) decided that I wanted to make, I might've talked about this in the podcast before, I decided that I wanted to make a, a speech that was funny. I, did, I didn't want to do what all those other stuffy people were doing where they give a speech and that kind of stuff. I, I wanted to do a, basically a skit. I wanted to do a comedy skit. Uh, the problem is I'm not a funny person um, and or uh, I've never done sketch comedy. So why in the world would I think that me doing some kind of comedy act would be a good thing to do? Well, there was um, – it's so convoluted – but, um, you know, I, I was one of the only non-white people who went to my school uh, in the 80s, Issaquah High School. Uh, be, and I'm half white myself. And I'm, the other half is Japanese, which, you know, is um, one of the whitest uh, minorities around. And so, uh, and yet I was extremely uh, foreign or, or exotic, I should say, compared to everyone else around and it was often emphasized, you know, it was an em- it was an emphasis, you know, that um, Kirk was brown or Kirk was Asian or whatever. And so I decided to kind of embrace that identity. And, and I wanted to, when I was running for treasurer, I decided I would really play up the fact that I was Asian. And I dressed up in a karate outfit and I made this big poster, someone made it for me, that said, you know, vote for Kirk for treasure. And then I was going to bust through, like, with a karate kick or something. And then I was, uh, I'll spare you the details, but essentially I, I, part of the joke was I needed to drag one of my friends up on stage and dance with them. Um, 
it, it was probably going to be kind of funny based on other things that had happened at our school, but I couldn't find him in the crowd because I, the crowd had 400 kids in it and I didn't know where he was sitting and I was dancing around kind of look, trying to look for him. But anyway, it was a disaster of us, of a quote unquote speech. Um, it lasted way too long. It made no sense and was so dumb. And I'm so glad no one filmed it uh, because I would just be mortified to watch this thing. And afterwards, I, or during, I knew immediately I have made the worst mistake of my life. This is so dumb. I, what am I doing up here? I should have thought this through. I should have consulted with someone about this. What am I doing with myself? But, you know, afterwards, I just, you know, picked up and did it, you know, did some other stupid thing and tried out some other dumb thing and, and failed at that, too. And that's because my parents were not anxious parents because they let me make mistakes and learn that it's not a big deal. People will still like you after you, you know, completely make a fool out of yourself in front of your entire class and, you know, 400 kids, you know, just looking at you going like, what is wrong with this person? And, you know, the next day, a couple people make a joke, but, you know, everyone is fine. They're fine. Everyone still likes you. There's there's nothing horrible about making a fool out of yourself on stage. Um, if anything, it might actually make you even more popular. I don't know. But anyway, so, um, uh, and there, you know, there's so many other examples, actually, like um, in high school, I also was a burgeoning musician and me and my band, we, uh, you know, rehearsed for a talent show and about, I'm not even joking, five, 10 minutes before we're going to go on stage, we decided the last minute that we hate our song that we're going to perform. And we're like, well, what are we going to do then? And we're like, well, how about we just write a song right now? So we verbally wrote a song in under five minutes as we were walking onto the stage. I mean, we sort of had a punk attitude about things anyway, but it was terrible. We performed one of the dumbest talent show performances of all time, but I love it. Me and my bandmates love it. No one else liked it, but we just thought it was hilarious and just how, you know, how fun it is to sort of embrace making a terrible mistake. I mean, it's cringeworthy when, when I think about it, especially like soon after I was just like, oh God, why did I do that? But at the same time, it didn't prevent me from trying to achieve things in the future. So the key is, is when you're parenting kids, you have to let them make mistakes and learn that it's okay to make mistakes. You know, when, when they screw up, don't run over there and say, oh no, it was someone else's fault or don't try to protect them from the pain of making a mistake. You're like, okay, you made a mistake. You know, everyone makes mistakes. Uh, reminds me of the Big Bird song. I had a vinyl record from Sesame Street. Everyone makes mistakes. So yes, they do big ones, small ones, or big people, small people. Matter of fact, all people. Everyone makes mistakes. So yes, they do. Was that Big Bird or was that Grover? Pretty sure it was Big Bird. Anyway, Everyone makes mistakes. <clears throat> and parents, you have to let your kids make those mistakes and help them with their emotions as they're making those, those mistakes. And if you have other oriented perfectionism, you know, make sure you check that shit because that will harm your kids. Okay, another, so that's anxious parenting. There's another dimension of parenting, which is called um, effortful control. So, uh, this is in the literature. It's basically parenting that helps children with their emotional awareness and regulation. So 
um, for example, this, this kind of parenting, this kind of good parenting, let's say you have a child who was terrified of interacting, interacting with other children on the playground. Um, when you go to the park, they, they don't want to, they don't even want to go to the park because if other kids are there, they're like terrified of playing with other kids. And you're concerned about that. You know, you're like, well, you know, my kid is going to be in kindergarten soon and they have to play with other kids. Um, but they're terrified of going to the park. And even if they go to the park and they see other kid, if they see other kids in the playground, then they just stay with you. They don't venture off and play with other kids. And uh, effortful control parenting is parents when you help the child with being okay either way. Like you're not pressuring them. Like you're, you're, you don't say you will play with those other kids. God damn it! Like you're not, you're not forcing them to play with other kids, but. You know, you know, you're encouraging them, but you're also cool if they're afraid. So it's, you know, that kind of zone. Also, effortful control parenting is when uh, you help them with their emotional regulation. So they're, you know, help them to know that they're afraid because they might not even know that, th- that they're experiencing fear, um, which is okay. It's like, it's okay to be, it's okay to be afraid. And then you teach them how they can calm themselves down, how they can reassure themselves how it's okay to make mistakes, how you'll be watching, you'll be nearby to help them, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so this sort of parenting has been associated with a reduction in perfectionism in offspring. The third kind of parenting worth looking at here is conditional love. So some parents will exhibit conditional love, uh, meaning that uh, this is also called conditional regard. This is when parents condition their love and attention on perfect behavior in the children. Um, you know, this is likely to result in the child developing perfectionism, right? Um, so in this way, there's a lot of evidence that perfectionism seems to be passed down. So when you're a parent and you have other-oriented perfectionism and you require your children to be perfect, well, you're pressuring your kid and that's freaking them out. And that's more, they're more, the child is more likely to develop perfectionism themselves. And then that child, you know, becomes an adult might have self oriented perfectionism, but might also have other oriented perfectionism because they have all these negative feelings inside. And they've also been modeled how to parent in that way. And perfectionism gets, just gets passed down to the generations. So if you're a parent, you need to make sure that, um, you don't condition your love on children being perfect, which I'm sure all you lovely people know already. The fourth parenting dimension to look at is parenting style. A lot of people might know these. This is the authoritarian, authoritative, permissive, and neglectful parenting styles. So basically, this was developed by uh, Bomrand in the late 70s and further uh, elaborated on by McCoby and Martin in, in the 80s. Basically, there are two dimensions of parenting. You have demandingness and responsiveness. So demandingness is how controlling the parent is, how much demand um, the, the, how much you demand the child to have good behavior, how much the parent supervises the child. So demandingness can be a good or a bad thing, by the way. So it might sound bad, but any parent out there knows that um, you need to exhibit some control over your child, and you need to demand that your child have good behavior on some level. Uh, 
sometimes I find that liberal people without children will say like, well, aren't kids just naturally good? And, you know, some kids are, but most kids, you need to tell them what to do. <laughs> you need to say, you know, put down the rock, stop throwing it at, at the other kids. Um, and the other dimension is responsiveness. This is how warm the parent is, how responsive they are to the child's needs, this kind of th- thing, how, how much they accept the child as they are, how involved they are in the child's life. So demandingness, which is sort of you know, parental control, parental guidance, and then you have responsiveness, which is basically responsive to emotional needs. So imagine you have each of these on an X and a Y axis. And um, on, in one quadrant, you have authoritarian parenting. So this is high demandingness, meaning high control over your child, but low responsiveness, meaning you're, you're pretty controlling, but you don't have a lot of warmth. And this has been shown to be associated with perfectionism and a lot of the bad side of perfectionism. So a lot of those people who had the other oriented and the, um, a lot of the other, you know, the bad outcomes associated with perfectionism, they might have had a parent who was authoritarian, who's, you know, quite controlling, quite um, supervising of the child, but not a lot of warmth and love. So people with this sort of parenting have, uh, you know, these children have a lot of negative affect. They, they might be depressed. They might avoid things because it's overwhelming to them. They'll, they'll do worse in school. They have a fear of failure and they have a lot of test anxiety, which makes sense, right? You know, if you're a child and your parent is always looming over you, but they never give you warmth to soothe you, then you're likely to develop this sort of terror around making a mistake because your parents are just, they're right around the corner and they're going to start yelling at you. And so that is fertile ground for perfectionism. In another quadrant, we, when we have high demandingness and high responsiveness, this is what we call authoritative parenting. And the, so these parents control their children, absolutely, but they do so in a loving manner. And so this is associated with self-oriented perfectionism, which is associated with a lot of good things. So you have authoritarian, which is high demand and low love, low warmth. This is associated with perfectionism, but the bad side of perfectionism. And then authoritative, which is high demand and high responsiveness. And this is also associated with perfectionism, but the good side of perfectionism. You know, doing well in school, being satisfied with life, having, a, you know, being independent, um, and not likely to be depressed. So I would suspect that I guess my parents were kind of like that, were high demanding and, and high responsive. Um, I think parenting is more nuanced than that, but anyway. Uh, and the third quadrant out of four, we have permissive parenting. These are people who have low demandingness and high responsiveness. So they're warm and loving, but they don't enforce any rules. And this is not associated with perfectionism. And the fourth is neglectful parenting. This is low demandingness and low responsiveness. So not so no rules and no love. And this is also not associated with perfectionism. So it seems that the demandingness part of uh, of um, 
parenting is associated with the children developing perfectionism. So the more controlling, the more supervision, the more watchful you are of your child's behavior, the more commentary you say of your child's behavior, like knock that off, or that's good that you did that, like more attention in that area. Um, You know, you're more watchful over grades, this sort of thing. Then you're more likely to develop uh, a child who is perfectionistic. But if you give that child love and attention, then they're likely, as, as in authoritative parenting, then that child is likely to develop the good version of perfectionism, the one that I'm exhibiting in myself for the most part. But if you don't love the child, then the child will develop into having a bad version of perfectionism. I hope that makes sense. So that's the difference between authoritarian, which we want to avoid, and authoritative. So this, for some people, flies in the face of a lot of myths of parenting in that people will say, well, you know, if you're really demanding of your child, that's bad for your child. And what this shows is, is no, 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 no. It's only bad if you don't love your child at the same time. If you deeply love your child and make sure they understand you love them and give them warmth and listen to them and respond to their emotional needs and that kind of stuff, and you're very demanding, then in all likelihood, your kid's going to be really happy. In fact, according to research, that's probably the best form of parenting. Now, um, demanding is not abusing or yelling or criticizing or, you know, being horrible to kids. That's the important thing here. And of course, parenting is nuanced and complicated and it's a system. So, um, you know, any any simple explanation of good parenting is is silly. So um, we don't need to go down that road. Um, the last thing I'll say here is that uh, temperament affects parenting, which affects per, uh, perfectionism. So I've already talked about, you know, personality and temperament, right? Well, what can happen is that when a child enters the world with a particular personality trait and they start interacting with their parents, well, the parents, the, their parenting style will be altered partly by the temperament and personality of that infant, of that toddler. And so sometimes the perfectionism issue begins with the child because the child kind of forces or socializes the parents to act in a certain way, which can in turn create perfectionism in the kid, if that makes any sense. This is an important point to make about parenting is that it's not a one-way street. Often when we're talking about parenting, we're like, you know, it's just a choice that parents make, right? You decide this is the sort of parent I'm going to be. I'm going to be loving and I'm going to be watchful, but not too watchful. That's the sort of parent I'm going to be. But when you actually live real life and real families and real parenting, you realize that no matter how hard you try, some kids just force you to change your parenting style based on their disposition, based on the way that they are. And so with some kids, for example, you don't actually need to monitor them much at all because they they do great on their own and they don't like it when you're bothering them. Whereas other kids might need you to monitor them every second of every day. And that's just the way they entered the world in part, you know? And so uh, it's important to know that, that it's a system. It's a mutually causing system, not, not a one-way street, not a linear thing. Okay. So we've talked about temperament. We've talked about personality as a cause of perfectionism. We've talked about gender socialization. We've talked about parenting. Now let's go on to the fifth factor 
that causes perfectionism, and this is school environment. So school environments that emphasize high achievement standards can also lead to children developing perfectionism, maintaining their perfectionism, and increasing their perfectionism. So, so you know, anyone who has kids in more than one school or has a kid go to, you know, different schools like elementary school, middle school, you realize that each school has its own vibe, has its own culture, has its own emphasis on achievement. Some schools have little emphasis on achievement and some schools, it's just in the air. Uh, I've talked about this on the podcast before. I do work with a local um, uh, middle school that goes to a camp and we talk about feelings and sex ed and stress and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, the point is, is that this school is, although it's a public school, is essentially the local school that is sort of like a prep school. Uh, And the kids there are all um, children of Microsoft and Google and all these kind of stuff. And the, the parents have extremely high standards for these kids' academic achievement. I mean, on the wall, they have like, um, you know, the, the graduating class of, of 2017, five of them are at Harvard and five of them are at Yale and five of them are at Brown and two of them are at Columbia and, you know, that kind of stuff. And kids that are 13 years old are like already planning what Ivy League school they're going to go to. And so that's a very particular culture of that school. And when you have a culture of perfectionism in the school of high academic achievement, that is going to influence the kids, regardless of parenting, regardless of personality, to develop perfectionism. Um, And interestingly, when they do the research, they find that Kids who are mediocre at school, who get like, you know, C's and B's, these kids are not likely to develop perfectionism because they're already just sort of doing okay, they're average. It's the kids who are getting good grades, those are the ones that are at risk of developing perfectionism, which I find to be interesting. It's like, well, don't you want kids to get good grades? But actually, what, and of course we do, but what we should be looking at with some of our kids is like if they're doing really well in school or they're doing really well in a sport or something, we should probably monitor how they're processing that experience because if they start developing this need to be perfect and this, you know, linking their self-worth to never making a mistake and never getting a B, then that's a problem, right? Because, you know, you're 13, you're getting straight A's and you're getting all this attention. You're just like, oh, I'm a smart person and everyone else is dumb and I'm capable of getting straight A's all the time. I better get straight A's. You know, what if I don't get straight A's? You know, it just, it becomes a problem for some kids. So we need to watch out for that. Also, gifted children are particularly susceptible to becoming perfectionistic for a number of reasons. One, again, is that gifted kids, some of them can actually do really well in school and they notice that they're smarter than other kids. And so they're like, well, um, if I get a B, then man, what's wrong with me? Um, plus, gifted kids are uh, tend to be overly sensitive to things. And so um, there's just a lot of elements of giftedness or sensitivity that can cause a kid to be pushed into perfectionism, bad perfectionism. Um, okay, so let me tell another story here. I have a story here of of another client. 
again, I always masked identity to protect confidentiality. So uh, th- this is someone that exhibits this school influence on perfectionism. So a teen boy, and the presenting problem was that his grades were taking a nosedive. He was defying some rules at, at home. He wasn't doing his chores. He was skipping classes sometimes. He was using pot, and he, he had changed his friends to kind of a new bad set of friends. This teen boy was very privileged, um, li- lived a very privileged life in society, and he had a, um, you know, a good family, but kind of an anxious mom and kind of a distant dad. And uh, he went to private school, and there was a lot of pressure to do really well. And in the beginning, for the first number of years, he did really well in school, but now he was getting all Fs. And so there was a lot of confusion, and they brought him into therapy with me, and I worked with the family. Because I very rarely will work just with the kids. I, I always need to work with the parents, too. To you therapists out there who don't do that, I highly recommend it. Um, so after a lot of patient investigation by me, because it takes a long time to, because he didn't want to be in therapy, he was being forced, took a long time to kind of figure things out. Um, I found out that he was generally anxious and socially anxious too. So he was kind of a worrier and he was avoiding attachment. He would um, worry about getting too close to people and he, he liked to be extremely independent and he would lock himself in his room all the time. And he was somewhat, somewhat compulsive. Like, you know, he, he liked things to be in order. Um, and at first it was like, okay, um, it's, you know, he's kind of a tut nut, tut nut to crack, tough nut to crack. And so <laughs> how many letters did I screw up in that phrase? That's funny. Tut nuff to craft. Um, Anyway, it took me a while to get through to him and um, took months, actually. I eventually discovered that behind this tough nut of a shell, tough shell of a nut, I found out he was perfectionistic. And it was so interesting to have learned that because at first I was like, oh, he's just being defiant. He's just being a rebellious kid. But then I was like, wait a second. I think he's perfectionistic. And he was so worried about making a mistake at school, that he was paralyzed with fear. He wouldn't put it this way, but this is what I deduced, is that, you know, when he was younger in school, he was perfectionistic too, um, but he would try really hard. And school was easier when he was in grade school, right? And his parents always noticed, you know, how hard he worked in school, but um, they didn't really, and they thought it was a good thing, right? It's like, oh, he's a good student. You know, he's going to be a doctor one day. This is great. But he never asked for help. And he, uh, he would just sort of suffer in his own anxiety about making sure everything was perfect. But again, since the, the pressure on kids in primary school and middle school isn't very high, um, he got by. But when he entered high school, that's when things started to get more um, pressuring because the grades in high school are more discreet. You know, it's like you either make the grade or you don't. And so he started getting even more worried about his grades. And when he got a bad grade in high school, it would um, really bother him. He'd beat himself up, you know. He'd worry up until the test, and he would worry after the test. And when he got his test result back, his test result back, he would beat himself up. So it was just this, just, you know, this 
whole, his whole world was filled with anxiety about performance in school. And of course, the teachers didn't take notice of that. The parents didn't because they're like, oh, he really cares about school. That's good. It's good that he's worried about school. It's good that he cares about his grades. I mean, lots of other kids, they don't even care. This is good. Well, he uh, eventually, once he got to kind of the rebellious, you know, 15, 16 years of age stage, that's when he was just like, why am I doing this? I'm breaking my back over school. I hate this. This is terrible. I'm not going to do this anymore. And so he just one day decided, fuck it. I'm not doing, I'm not doing school anymore because school is terrible and I hate school. And his grades plummeted, right? And people started to criticize him and his, you know, his parents started to distance, you know, themselves from him. And his friends started to distance themselves from him because he wasn't doing the normal prep school thing. And he switched from being a good kid to being a bad kid. And he also kind of saw himself as being too smart for school. And so by the time I saw him, he had fully identified with the bad kids. He's like, I'm a bad kid. I don't care about school. But underneath it all, what I you know figured out was that he was perfectionistic, that he couldn't handle, you know, uh, another person without perfectionism would have entered high school and, you know, tried hard and got a B or a C or something and be like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of a bummer, but, you know, no big deal. People make mistakes. I'll, I'll try harder next time, or I won't. Who cares? School, who cares? I'll just, I'll just, you know, I'll put in effort, but whatever. And they would get Bs or Cs or As or whatever. But with this kid, it was As or it was nothing. It was A pluses or, or he wasn't going to even try at it. That, that was his problem. That's, that's the essence of perfectionism, bad perfectionism, is that if I get an A minus or a B, my worth is now in question. Um, and my future is now in question. What, you know, what lies beyond the mistake of the world? And part of the problem was that this kid, since he was smart, never got bad grades growing up, never experienced what that was like. And it would have been good if he would have actually experienced some of that, you know? So the treatment was to build a relationship with him, which took a long time since he was avoidant and he saw himself as a bad kid who shouldn't be in therapy. But, you know, build a relationship with him. It was, it was, it was never great, but it was okay. And I got the parents to see things more accurately, you know, put less emphasis and less pressure about school on kids. I can't tell you how many times I have conversations or in the past, because I, I don't treat families anymore um, just because of the way people have come to me. But in the past, when I treated a lot of families with teenagers, I would spend, you know, a lot of time with parents telling them to calm down about school. <laughs> like school's important. Yeah. But you know what is vastly more important is your relationship with your child. That is the most important thing. Um, you know, 200 years ago and beyond that point, uh, or even just 50 years ago, 75 years ago, school kids didn't even stay in school beyond the age of 10 or 12 or something. And they were fine. Why? Because their parents loved them. And we, in our society, put way too much uh, weight on how well kids do in school. 
And, you know, if, if you have a straight A student, everyone looks at the parents and go, oh, great job. Um, but uh, there are so many other things that need to be worked on with a kid that are way more important than grades. Anyway, so I spent a lot of time talking with parents about that, and it's very hard to do. But anyway, did that with them, and they took to that pretty well. I also worked with him on his cognitions about failure, right? About like, okay, so let's say you go back to school. And let's say that you do a mediocre job on your math test. Tell me how that would feel like, you know, and he'd be like, well, that I'd feel stupid because I'm better than that. I'm smart. And that would be awful. Well, okay. Uh, what's awful about it? You know, what actual bad thing will happen? Well, I don't know. Well, it's because nothing bad will happen. <laughs> you you just get a bad grade, no big deal, you know? You just, you go to school, you do your best, and if you get Ds or Cs or whatever, then, you know, you get credit in the class and no one cares. So, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, and we also tried to work with the school in terms of the way that they taught him and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, research shows that could actually work. Uh, I'm probably not summarizing the treatment with him uh, super well, but I would say that, again, we worked on his cognitions, we worked on his relationship with his parents, we worked on the way the parents treated him, we worked on the way the school treated him, we worked on him becoming accustomed to making mistakes, we worked on his self-awareness around perfectionism and his emotional regulation around it, and it took a long time, and we really only got about 20% down the road because um, he wasn't really on board with working on these things. But, you know, it, it was a little bit of work, and I would like to think that I, quote-unquote, planted a seed. Okay, the number six factor. So we've talked about temperament, personality, parenting, uh, gender socialization, school environment. Now let's talk about number six factor, sports environment. So similar to school. When you are in a culture of a sport that has a lot of pressure and you have no way of mitigating the pressure uh, from the people in that sport culture, then you are at risk of developing maladaptive perfectionism. Some research seems to indicate that kids who specialize in one sport are more likely to develop harmful perfectionism. You know, like when I grew up, I played, um, you know, I was on track, I played soccer, I played football, I was on the wrestling team, I played basketball, I played volleyball, I played baseball, even played softball for a bit. And all those sports I was not amazing at, you know. But if I had specialized in one sport, you know, like wrestling or something, then I would sort of expect myself to be really good in that sport, right? Because it's like, if I'm going to play it year-round, I should be good at it, right? And so some research seems to suggest that uh, of course, this, is, this isn't the only factor, but one factor is that when you have kids specialize in playing one sport year-round, they're more likely to develop perfectionism, which makes sense, right? And I, in my anecdotal experience, we're heading in that direction with kids, where there's more and more, you know, like with soccer, for example. When I was a kid, you could play soccer during the fall months, and that was it. There was no other place you could play soccer. I would hear about like a you know, a select, they called it the select league. Uh, you know, there's some kind of distant select league that some kids would play for a couple months during the spring, I think. But 
it wasn't very prevalent. Now you see kids in high school or middle school will play soccer all year round. They're on their high school, they're on their school team, they're on multiple, you know, rec teams, they're on a on an all-star team, a select team, they're you know, there's just soccer, soccer, soccer all the time, all the time. Now, if that's your life and that's what you want to do, then great. But if you don't watch it with your kids, they might end up developing perfectionism around that sport because it's their entire world and they become sort of clouded by the fact that they're in this very insular, all-encompassing world that privileges the best players. You know, it's like everyone, every soccer team knows who the best player is, right? And and that person always gets the most praise, right? Oh, that guy, he's so good. You know, that, that girl, she's so good, blah, blah, blah. And so if you have issues with self-esteem, then it, it might challenge your personality in that way. All right, and the last factor looking here is culture. Of course, culture is a factor when it comes to developing perfectionism. We've basically already talked about some culture already, you know, school culture, sports culture, but general culture of a society can also play a role. For example, Asian shame. You know, we've all heard about how Asian shame is a thing and which can make, according to research, perfectionism particularly a problem for Asian Americans. Wang et al. in 2018 did a study and found that family shame in Asian families can increase the risk of perfectionism. But as I said earlier, if the Asian shame is matched up with a lot of love and with a lot of um, uh, feeling as though you belong to your ethnic group, then that will mitigate the harmful effects of perfectionism. So you can be an Asian and you can be a tiger mom. And as long as you're loving at the same time and, and you help the child have a lot of uh, pride in being Asian, then this can help to avoid harmful uh, perfectionism. Okay, so let's talk about imposter syndrome for a bit. We've already talked about it a little bit. But research has found that perfectionism has been linked with imposter syndrome. It makes sense, right? If you're striving to be perfect and you have a lot of self-doubt and you are afraid of making mistakes, there's a likelihood that you're going to feel like an imposter. You're going to feel like that you don't really deserve to be there. Like you're trying to be the perfect pianist in a, you know, in an orchestra or something, and you're just like, I'm not a real pianist, and I'm going to screw this up. I feel like an imposter, that kind of thing. Or you, particularly if you're of a marginalized group, you're African-American, you're a woman, and you're working at Microsoft, then you're at greater risk of actually feeling like an imposter because you are marginalized and you are uh, maybe even have internalized racism, internalized sexism, that you don't, you're not supposed to be there. And you can walk around feeling like an imposter and you can also walk around feeling like you're terrified of making a mistake and paralyzed by indecision because of that. So you have, you have perfectionism and imposter syndrome. Coakley et al., a study in 2018, found that if a, if a perfectionist has good self-esteem, then they don't develop bad perfectionism or imposter syndrome. But if the person has um, 
uh, low self-esteem, then they're more likely to develop bad perfectionism and imposter syndrome. And this is in line, research, this research is in line with things I've been saying before, which is self-esteem is the main factor when it comes to perfectionism and imposter syndrome. If you have good self-esteem, then that staves off both bad perfectionism and imposter syndrome. Another topic besides imposter syndrome I want to talk about just briefly is that um, this one study looked at people in terms of how attracted they are to perfectionists romantically. And this one study, Davis et al. 2018, found that people were the most attracted to non-perfectionists. So when they were given scenarios of people that are just like, oh, I I want to date that person, that non-perfectionist. So perfectionists in general are not preferred, at least in this study. Uh, The second most attractive person is the socially prescribed uh, perfectionist. So this is interesting. This is someone who has, who feels like there's a lot of pressure on them from society to be perfect, which is interesting because socially prescribed perfectionism is actually associated with a lot of bad things. So it could be that people don't really know that and therefore think, oh, well, they're just, they just feel a lot of pressure from society. That's really normal. But really what people should be saying is like, ooh, they, they're internalizing way too much pressure from society. That, that person might have some issues that are going to be challenging in a partner. The third most attractive person is the self-oriented perfectionist. This is the, um, you know, this is the, the, the type of perfectionism that is more associated with good outcomes. Um, and then the last, the least most attractive person in this Davis et al. 2018 study was other-oriented perfectionism. These are people who impose their perfectionism on other people. Makes sense, right? You're not going to be enthusiastic about dating someone who is super interested in, in changing you into what their version of perfection is. All right. So another topic of interest before getting into treatment is sexual perfectionism. There are all three kinds of sexual perfectionism. You have self-oriented sexual perfectionism, other-oriented, and socially prescribed. So, um, you know, and there's some research on this, that for the self-oriented people, they feel like they need to be perfect themselves. They need to be the perfect sexual partner for other people. They have to look perfect. They have to do the perfect sexual things. And some of these people might avoid sex altogether to avoid the stress. The second category is other-oriented sexual perfectionists. These people need their partners to be perfect. These people might be abusive. They might have narcissistic personality, um, unclear, but they impose their version of perfect sex on their partners. And then three, there are socially prescribed sexual perfectionists who feel as though society is pressuring them to be perfect sexually. So for you clinicians out there, you need to be aware of this because it's not likely that people will come forward and talk about this uh, because it's sexual and perfectionism. I mean, that's just another thing that I'll say to clinicians out there is that I've never had a client come to me and say, I need help with my perfectionism. I've never had that. But I've detected perfectionism in many, many clients. And that's important to, to, to take note of because perfectionism is one of those things that you have to investigate, you have to detect, you have to figure out, like, is, does this person have the signs of perfectionism? 
And then when you bring it up, they're not likely to say, I need help with it. Because a lot of perfectionists believe that's just the way life is. And so they might come in with something else, though. They might come in with relationship problems, anxiety, problems at work, depression, suicidality, eating disorders. And it's up to you, in my experience, to actually, you know, investigate and figure out if they need to be working on perfectionism. All right, so let's get into the treatment here. How do you treat perfectionism? I've already talked about it to some extent. But to be more specific, um, the first question we want to ask ourselves is, does research demonstrate that treatment of perfectionism can even work? You know, does it, is it even effective? And the answer is yes. There's plenty of research uh, demonstrating that therapy can indeed decrease perfectionist tendencies and traits and behaviors in clients. Even online treatments. There have been some online therapy treatments for perfectionism that has worked, that have worked. To me, there are really two different main goals that I've talked about before. Number one is to transform the perfectionism into beneficial perfectionism, which is perhaps the path that I went on in my life. And number two is perhaps to get rid of perfectionism altogether. It just depends on what you think clinically is um, important and what the client wants. There are some, uh, there have been some research trials on different uh, types of therapies for perfectionism. For example, Vekas and Wade in 2017, they recruited some students, some kids who are between 10 and 12 years of age. It, just a side note here, in, in this report, they talk about the kids were aged 10.08 years, that's the low end, to 12.79 years. So who does that? Who, who says, this person is 10.8 years? So basically what they did when they did, you know, did this study is they recruited a bunch of kids between the ages of 10 and 12, 10 and 13. And then they got their precise birth date, right? So they said, you know, we need your birth date. And then they had some sort of algorithm in an Excel spreadsheet that determined to the hundredth decimal point exactly how old they were. You know, because 10.08 years is, you know, that's that's like 10 years in a month. So um, I just find that to be annoying in reports when they use um, one, a lot of times they'll just even using one decimal point will kind of bug me, you know, like um, they uh, they rated a scale of a 47 point. Five And it's like, when you're on the level of 47, do you really need that 0.5? Is that really important to you? Um, I, I mean, I, I hope people understand what I'm saying. If you understand what I'm saying, please email me because I, whenever I see this, it bugs me. Maybe it's part of my perfectionism. I don't know. And I always find it just annoying. And I, when I actually talk about statistics on this podcast, I will, I'll round up or I'll round off and um, this is you know, one of those times when it's just like, what, 10, you know, the, the kids involved in this study were 10.08 to 12.79 years. Like, at the very least, you could say 10.1 to 12.8, you know, you could just round it off. Or, you know what, just say 10 to 12, or kids that were 10, 11, and 12 years of age. How about just that? Like, why, why are you going 10.08 years? It's so annoying. Anyway. 
So anyway, this study was looking at what kind of therapy can actually, or what sort of interventions can lower perfectionism in kids who are between the ages of 10.08 years and 12.79 years. And there were 107 kids and the control condition had 105. The intervention was cognitive behavioral therapy that targets perfectionism. It's a particular kind of module that they have. I I suspect that in this module for the kids, there's probably awareness of self-talk, like the kind of things they say to themselves when they are, you know, doing something that's hard you know, whether they criticize themselves in their mind or something. Uh, Self-awareness around emotions. I'm guessing there were uh, talk about how to cope with pressures to be perfect and how to ask for help, etc. And there were only three lessons, once per week for 45 minutes each. And it was interactive, not didactic. So there were activities that the kids did. And they did brainstorming activities, small group discussions, whole class discussions, role plays, and reflective exercises. So this was only just three meetings with these kids, basically in a classroom, right? Once per week, you know, so three weeks, 45 minutes each, not long at all. And the results showed that at post-intervention, children in the intervention group had significantly lower perfectionism than the control group. And at three-month follow-up, they had significantly higher levels of well-being. So what this shows us is that a lot of kids are in need of this kind of intervention, which I have been screaming about for a long time. We have kids who go to school 180 days out of the year. They go to school Monday. They go to school Tuesday. They go to school Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. For several months, they study lots of important things, science, math, English, history, they run around the field, they, you know, go to lunch. There's, there's a lot of things that teachers are doing. And yet, how many kids are being talked to about perfectionism when all they need is three lessons, 45 minutes each, and research shows that it reduces perfectionism and increases their well-being? Like, why are we not doing that? I just find it to be archaic, the kinds of things that we are doing to our kids right now. We should be, in my view, half of school should be about emotional intelligence and the other half should be about the things that they're being taught about. I mean, people out there, how important do you think it is that your kid learns trigonometry as opposed to them learning how to regulate their emotions? Now, your kids might be good at regulating their emotions because you're a good parent, but believe me, there are a lot of parents out there that are not good parents, meaning that they grew up with bad parents or they're struggling with trauma and it's hard for them. And schools can actually make a difference in that. And guess what? When it comes to crime, when it comes to uh, utilizing uh, tax dollars, uh, knowing trigonometry doesn't have uh, as much of of an influence on that than emotional intelligence, emotional regulation, Uh, knowing how to soothe yourself, knowing how to ask for help, all that kind of stuff. In my view, every kid should be getting three hours a day of psychology, sociology, critical thinking, coping skills, emotional regulation, communication skills, um, tolerance skills, you know, social justice skills, advocacy skills, um, 
self-exploration, self-actualization, goals in life. Like these are things that some schools are doing. Like I've, I've done it with some schools. Some schools have hired me to do it with them, but it's limited, you know? And the, the thing that I find while I'm on the soapbox, when I talk to teachers, and I have a lot of friends who are teachers, they, they tend to have an extreme, not all, but many of them have an extremely narrow view of what their kids are actually going through. You know, I'll, I'll go to them and, you know, just through conversation, you know, like I had a friend of mine who came to me is like, so what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm working on a podcast about suicide. And he's like, oh, interesting. And, you know, he's like, tell me, like, what, what have you learned? And I was like, well, I learned that something like one in eight kids, or I can't remember, um, some high stat of high school kids are currently thinking about suicide. And he was really surprised by that. He was just like, whoa, you know? And I was like, yeah, so how many kids do you teach a day? You know, 150 kids? Well, that, you know, about, statistically, about 30 of them are currently suicidal. And he was just like, wow, that just really blows me away because I don't know who that would be. And that, of course, is totally fine and justified because teachers are um, not necessarily let into the inner worlds of these kids and the kids are ashamed so they don't tell anybody about it, let alone their teachers. And so I find that schools are just like, well, you know, all these kids are fine. They'll, they'll be okay. Let's get to the important things like trigonometry and, you know, obscure history and <laughs> memorizing the presidents. And I mean, I remember once in high school, I was a senior and again, had already been accepted into UW. So I was really slacking. And I remember our teacher giving us an assignment to color in the different states. So he, he just passed out a bunch of, you know, papers, photocopied papers of the United States, and we had to color the states different colors. That, that was our assignment for the day. I was 18 years old and, you know, was way beyond that kind of shit. And I just remember, and I remember thinking, well, I have to do it. Otherwise, I'm going to flunk this class. And how how lazy this is and how stupid it is at the time I still respected teachers, but looking back, I'm like, that was bullshit. Like you just wasted all of our time. Like we could have been doing anything besides that. Um, I don't know. It could be argued. We actually did learn something in that, but anyway, so again, this study by Vekas and Wade 2017 found that when you just do th- three 45 minute meetings with kids between the ages of 10.08 and 12.79 years that that reduces perfectionism and increases well-being. All right, so what's my approach? So this is my approach to perfectionism. And again, like I said, it's rare that someone, no one's ever come in just for perfectionism. So I'm usually treating perfectionism along with a number of other things and people. But this is my approach. Number one, build a relationship. Always important. Very complicated topic, but always important. Number two is identify that perfectionism is a problem. Usually, maybe all the time in my experience, I'm the one that identifies the perfectionism, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to treat it. That means that I have to ask them, do you want me to treat it? Do you want, do you want us to address your perfectionism or not? And they might be like, no, I'm, I want to work on these other things, or I don't actually believe that my perfectionism is a problem. And in that case, I just, I just you know, say, great, let's not do that. So, I, so unless, until they say, yes, perfectionism is a problem in me, I, you know, Please help me with that. I don't do anything. 
but if they do say yes, let's work on it, then I move on. Number three is attack the cognitions and the beliefs. This is probably the most important part of the treatment. So as I've been talking about before, you just really have to identify their irrational or unhelpful beliefs and challenge them and attack them and eliminate them and modify them and get them to have different self-talk. So they're at work and they're about to give a presentation and they're terrified they're going to screw it up and they're, you know, worried that it's, you know, not going to be perfect and all this kind of stuff. And so we go over the cognitions. Okay, what goes through your mind? Well, uh, you know, the client will say, well, I'm worried that um, if it's not perfect, then um, something really bad will happen. And I, I just can't have that. I need things to, I, need, I really need things to be perfect. And I'd say, okay, well, let's slow down. Um, what happens if it's not perfect? Exactly tell me. So tell me it's 50% perfect and the other 50% is just a massive mistake. What will happen to you? Worst case scenario. And they're like, you know, reasonable worst case scenario. They're like, okay, well, reasonable. They're not, I'm not going to get fired because my boss likes me. Um, I guess everyone will think that I'm a terrible presenter, but really, you know, people give bad presentations all the time. So I guess everyone will just be really bored. Oh, okay. So if you're presentation, worst case scenario, reasonable worst case scenario, people are bored. Is that so bad? Have other people been bored before? <laughs> Can they, you know, are they going to ostracize you? Or is there any horrible effect from them being bored? And then the person, the client's like, oh, I guess not. So, so when you're working on this presentation, make sure you run that through your head. It's okay. The wor- reasonable worst case scenario, um, they're going to be bored and that's not that bad. And then their anxiety goes down and they can move forward with the task. But that process is pretty complicated. So, you know, I made it sound pretty easy. Trying to find those cognitions and those irrational, unhelpful beliefs are hard sometimes. Number four is behavioral things. So doing baby steps towards trying things and being okay with whatever happens. Uh, for example, sometimes I'll just, dis- I'll just prescribe to people that they fuck something up. Like if it's a kid in, in school, I'll just pr- say, look, do you have a test coming up? I, re- I prescribe to you that you get an F. And they'll just laugh at me. They'll be like, oh, that's funny. And I'll be like, no, I'm serious. Um, do at, don't study at all and just give it your best shot and know that you're not going to get a good grade on that test. And they're like, oh, my God, that sounds horrible. And I'm like, you need to get used to doing bad in school so that you can stop focusing on being perfect. Um, and so sometimes I'll do that. Or uh, I'll tell someone to go on a terrible date. You know, they'll be terrified of like, well, you know, what if I say the wrong thing? And what if the date goes terribly? Um, This is sounding like it's overlapping with social anxiety, right? Um, Which can be a shade of perfectionism. Some people I will just prescribe, look, do anything, do any mistake you can. Um, You know, this is the, the thing I always think about is Fight Club, the movie Fight Club when Tyler Durden tells all the fight club cult members to go out into the world and start a fight with anybody, you know, just, just walk up to someone and start a fight. And all these guys in the cult are kind of like nerds, you know, tech people and stuff who don't usually get in fights. And as a man, I can really relate to this because there's something really scary about getting punched in the face until you're punched in the face. 
and then it's not so bad. <laughs> you know, what, once you get punched in the face, you're like, oh, fucking hurts, but I guess it's not that bad. So, you know, in Fight Club, they're just like, go out there and provoke someone to punch you in the face. That's, that's the first thing you have to do. And it can be very liberating to overcome your fears in that way. You become habituated to things. You're like, oh, I guess it's not so bad. Anyway. So again, uh, number four is uh, having the client do baby steps towards quote-unquote failure so that they can just get accustomed to not being perfect. Number five is transform the perfectionism. Help them enjoy the good side of perfectionism. For example, helping them enjoy their high drive for achievement, um, but making sure that they're not dependent on it always being perfect and they're not terrified of the process. Number six is provide corrective emotional experiences. Um, you need a deep relationship for this, which is based on warmth and empathy and understanding and all those other things. And as the client makes mistakes, you will provide warmth rather than what they experienced as a child, which is, which was probably criticism. And you will foster self-compassion in them, which has been shown through research to mitigate perfectionism, self-compassion, you know, having compassion for the self. Number seven is manage your countertransference. Depending on the person, you're going to have varying levels and varying types of countertransference with clients like this. Uh, perfectionism, perfectionistic be, uh, behavior and personality traits can be frustrating at times to therapists, and so you just have to watch out for that countertransference. Some clients, some perfectionistic clients might recreate a, a dynamic with you a transference dynamic with you that seduces you into being critical of them or seduces you into being controlling of them, thereby recreating the original dynamic they had with their parents. And so you have to watch out for those countertransference seductions and uh, don't fall into it, which can just further the problem and prevent you from providing corrective emotional experiences, which might involve uh, in a scenario like that, allowing them to you know, refraining from giving them advice about particular things. Um, and number eight is address any random complicating factors like trauma, pressure from others, assertiveness, marginalization, social justice issues, this kind of stuff. And of course, it's easier said than done, but um, there are complicating factors. If someone has PTSD and they're perfectionistic, then of course you would need to be treating the PTSD as well. Some of you out there might be saying, okay, that's great, you know, for you clinicians, but what about me? I'm a, I'm a perfectionist and I don't want to go to therapy <laughs> or I don't have time or the money or whatever. What, what can I do? Well, you can do a lot of things. Again, you want to attack, you want to identify and attack your destructive cognitions. So, you know, sit down. Sometimes it helps to write it out. And it, I think it often does help is think about exactly what you're worried about and then write out the reasonable worst case scenario and then look at it and see if that reasonable worst case scenario is worth worrying about because usually it's not. Um, it's hard to do this on your own if you're really buried and you know drowning in your own anxiety. So having someone else kind of to bounce the ideas off would help, particularly a therapist. The second thing you should do is habituate to quote-unquote failures, right? Just go out there and make a mistake and see how that feels. And uh, over time, you'll just get used to it. Um, it's a similar thing for me as I developed a form of medical anxiety 
where I was just terrified of anything medical. It was very debilitating to me. And what I did was I just habituated myself back to medical things. I just baby-stepped my body to habituate to needles and surgeries and, you know, other kinds of things. So you want to habituate yourself to making mistakes. You want to make a mistake and then look around in the world and everything is fine. And then your body will say, oh, I guess making mistakes is okay. It's not anything to be terrified of. And number three is cultivate strong attachments that don't depend on you being perfect. So this is important, really important, is that when you have attachments that have unconditional love for you, then you will learn through that experience that attachment doesn't depend on you being perfect, which is really the crux often of perfectionism. These are all much easier said than done, of course. Okay, I wanted to talk about another story here, just you know, sprinkling real people, uh, a client of mine. This was an African-American female in her 30s, and her presenting problem was pr- relationship issues in general and issues with her parenting. After a few months, I discovered that she works a lot at her job, and she thinks about work all the time. She was losing sleep about work. She was highly dedicated to her job. She would work extra shifts, which she felt bad about because of her kids. And she was very concerned about how she was seen at her job by her peers because she was wanting to move up in the ranks. And she was very concerned about how to get recognized and how to get ahead. And she had a lot of self-doubt, at at least partly due to the fact that she was a black woman working in a white man's profession. And those were, you know, issues of imposter syndrome and, and perfectionism, you know, were being affected by that. Uh, And she felt bad because she was super preoccupied with being perfect at work and felt a lot of pressure to uh, be a high achiever as a single mother. And she was neglecting her kids, she thought, and she was neglecting herself her her own, um, you know, well-being. And so the treatment involved, again, looking at the cognitions, the the tyranny of shoulds and the musts of Albert Ellis and identifying those cognitions and really attacking them and learning where she learned these self-pressures. Like, why is she putting so much pressure on herself to be perfect? And then trying to heal from her childhood trauma that was the basis of her perfectionism. And what I did with her was helped her to get angry at her perfectionism, you know, just be like, fuck you, I'm not going to be perfect, that kind of thing. And we also worked on how she could enjoy herself in life, which is something that she never really allowed herself to do. Okay, so in conclusion, I wanted to, um, it just sort of occurred to me just now that I definitely have elements of the bad side of perfectionism. And it's the, the main example I can think of recently was, as some of you know, I was program director of my program at Antioch University, Seattle. So I was, I was the main boss in charge of the couple and family therapy program at Antioch, Seattle. And I had basically been groomed for that job over the span of eight years or something. So it was like, well, how long would it have been? It would have been six, seven years of me just slowly 
becoming more and more the program director. The the uh, the former program director just took me under his wing and um, just slowly started giving me responsibilities and stuff. So um, my entire life for, you know, better part of a decade was dedicated to me rising to the level of program director and potentially being program director for decades beyond that. Because the previous program director, Paul David, was program director for 25 years or something. And so, and he was the, he was the founder of the program. So Paul David founds this program, the couple of family therapy program. He builds it up from the ground up. You know, it starts off with just a few students, builds it up. It becomes the biggest program by far in the region. Um, in fact, all the other marriage and family therapy programs in the region, if you added up all the students, we are bigger than all of them combined. So he builds this program and then he hands it off to me. And, you know, usually people stay program director for a long time at my university. So I get the job and I uh, have been thinking about all the things I'm going to do. And I start implementing all those changes and I'm going to all these meetings and I, you know, I feel like I'm in the flow. I know what I'm doing. Um, I've been groomed for this job. I've been working in Antioch for 20 years. I know the ins and outs. And so um, I start, you know, hiring people. I start getting rid of people (laughs) and it's, you know, it's a very involved process. Well, about halfway through uh, my first year, maybe after my first year, um, I started feeling really bad about my job as program director. And it came down to a lot of things, honestly. There were just so many things that I didn't like about being program director. But one of them that I think I should talk about in this episode was my perfectionism. I... Once I'm such a perfectionist um, and I strive for things to be of such high quality that when, you know, like with this podcast, for example, I'm always striving to make this podcast the best it can be given what I have available to me, you know, given my brain, given my time limitations, my technology limitations, my talent limitations, um, Umberto, Bob, Rebecca, everyone else, you know, I'm always trying to make it the best it can be the website, the best it can be, blah, blah, blah. The, you know, the access to pay to premium episodes, which I swear to God is just so frustrating. There might be another answer out there for that, that I'm always obsessing on. But anyway, I digress. So with the podcast, it's, there's limited people and there's limited things to do. There's limited things to monitor. Um, in, in essence, I really only have to monitor myself because I'm 99.9% of what this podcast is. So, so it's very easy for me to manifest my perfect vision or to even know what's possible. Well, as program director of a large program at a university, uh, in charge of, you know, Uh, you know, almost 200 students or more actually, depending on if, so anyway, the point is, is there's hundreds of students and dozens of professors and dozens of staff people and dozens of administrators and presidents and, you know, all these people. And everyone has a different vision of what they want my program to be. And there's all these different moving parts And there were so many moving parts that were not perfect. Like, let me just give one example. 
So every course has a syllabus, right? Everyone knows what a syllabus is. Well, I uh, have always complained to just in my own head, because I wasn't program director before, that the syllabi across the different courses, there wasn't any uniformity to them. Every instructor just kind of did their own thing when it came to a syllabus. And there's been movements and efforts and some compliance with the with the templates that were sent out to people, but no one really monitors it. And so every once in a while, I'd come across an adjunct uh, syllabi, syllabi, syllabus, and I would just be mortified at how horrible the syllabus was organized and how some of the things in it actually broke federal law. You know, one thing you learn as being program director is, is there, there's a lot of ways you can get sued. And I was, you know, being actively sued by different students who were upset. I'll cut to the chase and say these students were monsters and absolutely deserved to get what they got. Um, and, the, you know, we're talking like one or two students over the span of like, you know, 10 years or something. So out of thousands of students, there's been one or two who are, you know, statistically, you're just like, okay, you're going to get some, you're going to get some monsters. But anyway, um, and since we're not like an accounting program, we're a therapy program, we have a duty to keep the gate. We have a duty to gatekeep, meaning that if we think that someone is going to harm the public by being a clinician, then it's our duty to not let them become a clinician. And it's very complicated and very fraught, but um, every once in a while, very rarely do we come across someone where we actually will um, put that you know duty to use. And anyway, so there's just so many things that are happening. And when you're when I'm looking at a syllabi syllabus of an adjunct and it's totally out of compliance and literal laws are being broken in the syllabus, I'm looking at this going, oh my God, how many other syllabi are like this? Well, since I don't have any staff members, you know, I don't, and even if I did have staff members, I don't really trust them to do a good job, you know? And so there's no one at the university who really keeps an eye on that because we're a smaller university. So, so it'd pretty much be up to me as, as program director. I would have to individually look at every single syllabus and review it and even just even get to know the system myself. I would have to become an ex. So first I'd have to become an expert on, on syllabi, which I wasn't. Um, there, my syllabi were probably out of compliance in some ways. So I'd have to become an expert. Um, that would take a lot of time. And where do I even look for that? Then I would have to individually look at everyone's syllabi every quarter. We do quarters, not semesters. So we have four quarters a year. So every quarter, I would, I would have to look at every single syllabus, and I would have to review it. And then I would have to yell at instructors, which would probably be at least five to ten instructors. I would have to yell at them and, you know, not yell at them, but I would have to, you know, as a boss, I would have to say, look, you have to change your syllabus. It's not correct. And then they might push back. And what if they are upset? And what if they don't correct it? Do I fire them? You know, these are questions. That's just that's just one area of being a program director that every program director has to think about. And for me, it drove me nuts because there were probably 500 things like that, literally. And I couldn't possibly do all of them, right? And even if I delegated them, like I said, I couldn't trust people to follow through because the way that my program worked and the culture of my program was that if you're not the chair, if you're not the program director, 
then you, you really don't feel a lot of ownership over the program. You, you like the program and you have pride in the program, but you don't really take ownership in the goings-on of the program. And so when I would delegate to people, lower people than me, they would sort of half-ass it a lot of the time because it's not a big deal to them. And again, what am I going to do? Fire them? Uh, yell at them? Uh, you know, it's just like, it's just a tremendous amount of political, you know, doings and stuff. And what I realized was that leadership sucks. <laughs> like, you know, everyone, uh, you know, another analogy situation is like when you've had a group project at school, you know, your professor says, okay, you four people, you have to do a group project. You know, everyone has nightmare experiences of that. Well, times that by a hundred, that's what it's like to be a program director. You're trying to deal with all these personalities and incompetence and apathy and confusion and there's just so many little topics. Like I said, you have the, you had the syllabi, you had different meetings, you had how they teach the class, what they teach in the class, what books they assign, um, what hours they hold, how fast they respond to students when they have questions, how many advisees do they have, um, do they follow all the rules that are laid out in the student handbook, should we have a faculty handbook, who's going to write the faculty handbook, what's the flow chart of outcomes, who collects the outcomes, what should the outcomes do? How should it get reported? I mean, this is just stuff off the top of my head. And my perfectionism has bad sides to it. It's not all good. You know, it's not all just me striving for achievement and, uh, and reaching those goals and having well-being, enhanced well-being. Some of it is when I'm in a situation like being program director and I'm reviewing those 500 things that are not perfect – I'm driven crazy and I'm super stressed out and I am paralyzed because there's too many things to do. I would sit there and I'd just be like, well, where do I begin? There's so many things to be to do and I don't even think it's going to work. And it did have some roots in my self-esteem. I would worry like, well, if I if I don't do this perfectly, it will reflect on me and I will look bad, you know, which is part of a narcissism, perfectionism, right? Whereas I looked to my professors, people under me, people I had hired, and thought, who else could be chair? And I just needed anybody, really. I was just like, I can't be program director anymore. My former, the former program director, the founder of the program has been retiring and so he couldn't do it. So I looked to my people and I, I, there were two professors who I thought could do a good job, but I really didn't know. And they were pretty new. They were very new to the program. And I was just like, man, this is pretty tough, but I'll be around and I can help them. I'll be a, you know, advisor to the program director. I just can't do this anymore because it's um, for, there were a number of issues with being program director. One of which, like I said, was my perfectionism, um, keeping me up at night. I found someone, Jennifer Sampson and, uh, she, you know, put her, uh, promoted her to my job and I demoted me to under her. And uh, she's been program director for a year now and I've observed her. And what I observe is that she is not a perfectionist. <laughs> like all the problems are still present now as they were a year ago. Um, and maybe even more problems now because there's more additions that have been added and all these kinds of things. But she, from my observation, it doesn't stress her out. 
she just, it's just like, yeah, there's going to be a lot of messiness. There's going to be a lot of imperfection and it's fine. You know, I'm cool. She just seems very cool. She just seems very calm and collected and everything's fine. And she has some experience with this because she uh, founded a uh, organization called the Hoarding Project, which is perhaps the main organization that deals with hoarding disorder. And she was the founder and the director and all that kind of stuff. And there was a lot of chaos in that process. And um, maybe she acclimated to that imperfection issue or something. I think the other thing for me now that I'm on the topic is that I could have dedicated, like with this podcast, for instance, there's a lot of moving parts too. And there's a lot of issues that I have to iron out and have a compulsion to iron out. But I love this podcast so much that it's worth it to me to lie awake at night and problem solve that way. When it came to the, you know, couple and family therapy program in Antioch, I cared, but I didn't care that much. And I think that was part of it. It's like, maybe that's part of the good perfectionism. It's like, in order for it to be good perfectionism, you have to have self-esteem and the ability to be flexible, which I don't think I have enough flexibility and also enough dedication to overcoming any perfectionism issues. Um, so I think that's another thing I'm discovering right now. Anyway, so that is my three and a half hour deep dive on perfectionism. Let me know what you think. Do you have stories of perfectionism? I'm actually pretty curious about other people's experience of perfectionism because I find that in my head, I don't have a ton of anecdotes. So it'd be really great to hear your anecdotes. And as always, let me know if I can read it on the podcast and whether or not you're a patron or not, or you must be a patron if you're listening at this point. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself and don't worry about being perfect because you deserve it. You really, really do.